in the old days, if if I were going to have a show, it would we would have to be together. You'd have to be like in a studio with me, and uh, you would think I would I would supply comfortable chairs for my guests. And you you know I feel like forcing guests to use Skype is like you get like a folding chair that that was that was outside and it has like rain scum on it. You know. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's nice to be on again. Oh. <laughs> uh, I, I, there's a couple of things we have to talk about, I guess. So there's always stuff to talk about, but wh- uh, there's a couple of recent posts that you've had on, um, your 500 ish, uh, word site. Is that what it's called? I know that's the domain. Yep. 500 ish yep. words. Yep. Um, but you wrote about the, the end of Virgin, um, Virgin America. Yep. Uh, can you summarize this? <laughs> and, and again, you even have, it's a perfect piece. I will put it in the show notes. Um, but it, it is perfect insofar as you admit that Virgin America only flew between a very small number of cities. Right. So there's a large number of people who, if you don't live in San Francisco, L.A., or New York, you probably haven't flown Virgin. Right. And and so, yeah. So basically, you know, I, I'm assuming it by this point, because it's been, been a, like a month or so, everyone knows that uh, Alaska Airlines bought Virgin America. And um, as a part of that, you know, they sort of did this whole big branding thing, certainly around San Francisco, and I assume other cities in which Virgin operates, where it's sort of like the Alaska plus Virgin equals love, uh, you know, type brand, type marketing campaign. And because obviously people were worried when someone else bought Virgin America, that there would be, um, you know, it'd be the end of Virgin America. And they were trying to sort of play it up. No, this is just going to make both sides even better. And then uh, whenever it was a few weeks ago, they of course announced that they're going to be uh, shutting down the Virgin America brand entirely. Um, and, uh, you know, basically merging the planes uh, and and sort of merging all into one entity, which of course, I'm sure makes sense for the bottom line. That's the reason why they're doing it um, for cost efficiencies. But uh, yeah, I mean, so people who don't live in one of the cities that Virgin America services, which is, I'm not even sure what the current number is, but let's say it's 10, maybe 12 or something like that. It's not very many still. Started in San Francisco. The company was was headquarters here. Obviously, it was famously, you know, started uh, out of Richard Branson's Virgin Group. Um, and... So people who don't live in one of those 10 to 15, whatever it is now, cities, um, you know, sort of don't really understand why people who do live in one of those cities and take Virgin regularly are sort of upset about this. And the best pushback uh, w- that I found most amusing was on Twitter, you know, basically saying, but Alaska Airlines is such a great airline, too. And, you know, I've been on Alaska, uh, certainly any flight that goes to, like, to sort of the Pacific Northwest, yeah. um, you know, that's sort of one of the common carriers. And it's fine. It's, it's a nice airline. You know, it's not united. <laughs> I'm sure we can talk about that in a second, but uh, it's it's fine. But it's not Virgin America. You have to be on a on a Virgin America plane to know what that's like. I mean, if you think back to when it when it started, whenever that was, several years back, um, you know, the fact that they were all sort of new planes. Um, it, the basic thing that that I highlighted. I, you know, in that in that post is I think people don't understand like you got a level of consistency flying Virgin America that you don't get with any other airline because it's a total crapshoot uh, whether you're going to get an old rickety plane whether you're going to get one with like you know still cigarette uh, yeah. <laughs> cigarette <laughs> ashtrays, ashtrays. <laughs> yeah and a sticker that says do not use <laughs> under federal law 
Yes. Um, and with Virgin, sort of because it was, you know, a newer airline, uh, they had all the same, I think it was the A380 planes. No, not the A380 is the big one. Whatever the, um, whatever the Airbus is. I think is they're they, A321s. Uh, I could it might be that, yeah. Maybe It's one of the, you know, the sort of standard, yeah. smaller um, uh, Airbus fl- planes. And so they were all that. They all had Wi-Fi, which at the time, you know, was, was a novelty, certainly. Uh, they all had those televisions in the screen backs, not just in first class or anything. All the screens, uh, all the seats, sorry, um, had that. And you had a very consistent experience. You knew if you were getting on a Virgin America flight, it was more likely to be a good flight. I mean, I'm sure there, you know, everyone will have a horror story about every airline, but it's not like, it's not like you hear about United and Delta and some of the other ones that are just, you know, constantly a crummy experience. This was, this was a, definitely a notch above. We had them in Philly, uh, until about two years ago. Uh, and we lost them. We lost Virgin during the, in the aftermath of the American, Oh, the merger? U.S. Air merger. I've yeah. told this story before, but long story short, it's very simple. Um, when, when U.S. Air and American proposed merging, one of the problem areas was that it gave the combined airline too many gates at JFK in New York. That, that the F or the Federal Aviation, there's some kind of limit to the percentage of gates that any one airline can have at any airport. And U- U.S. Air and American both had a big presence at JFK and it was too many gates. So they had to get rid of some of the gates and Virgin decided they would rather take more gates at JFK but leave Philly entirely. And they couldn't keep both because one of the problems of being an airline is it's really hard to get more planes. I mean, yep. it sounds silly because you think like, oh, you just buy – you know, call Boeing up and buy a plane. Away. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like if you and I bought a, a, or started a moving company and, and it took off and we needed more trucks, we could just go buy more trucks, right? That's not a problem. But in the aviation, it's, it, you know, you got to like order an airplane like a couple years in advance. So there's right. nothing. Such a long lead time. So, yeah. and so I've been off Virgin for a while, but I still get the emails. Like I got the email the other day from Alaska telling me not to worry. My points are okay. And it's <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll see. Uh, of course, you know, uh, Alaska's trying to say all the right things, you know, in their, in the sort of press statement about it. They said, um, we're going to be sort of bringing the Virgin experience to Alaska flights. And so, including the humorous, uh, bit about there being mood lighting, you know, that's one of the, yeah. that's like the thing they decided to focus on because Virgin America sort of famously has this, this purple hued mood lighting. And so Alaska is going to do that, but they're going to have blue mood lighting. So it will be, it'll be not the exact same, but it will be almost as good. Um, and we'll see. I mean, you know, they said that, that basically nothing was going to change, and then of course everything's changing. So um, you know, don't have a lot of uh, a lot of hope for it remaining as it was. The good news, if there is like you know slight good news, it's going to take them a long time to sort of phase in and out those changes. Um, and so Virgin will remain operating for for I think uh, at least like a year, maybe a couple of years, something like that. But um, yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be a big change, and and uh, as we're seeing this week with the the airline industry, this is sort of um, par for the course. Just doing anything to to screw over customers. I think they only had two or three gates in at Philly, um, so it wasn't a lot of flights. It wasn't a big presence, and it was a small desk for check in. You know, it was usually like two people, so it's not a fair comparison to like American, which dominates yeah. Philly. Um, but every time I every time I could fly Virgin, I did. Um, and I, you know, they had a great nonstop service between Philly and San Francisco, which was, it, you know, does a very common flight for me for, for yep. work. Um, every time I could, I did. 
and I never once had to wait. Like that, it's just little things like that. The people at the desk were like super efficient and and nice. And you'd get up there, and they would be like, "Hey, you know," and then you'd you'd give them your ID, and then they'd you know take your bag if you had a bag to check or or give you a, you know, and you were gone, yep. and that was it, and you only had. No lines, uh, never, and and good service on the plane. My favorite story about Virgin was one time. Um, also, I used to get, I got the cheapest upgrades to first class. I don't understand. They only had the way every plane. I, they're probably all the same. They only had like eight first class seats. It was like two rows of two. Yeah, um, or they still do, I guess. And every almost every time I flew, I could get an upgrade from coach to first class for like a hundred bucks, and I'd be like, yeah. yeah. In general, the first class seats, I mean, weren't super expensive when you compare it to what they are on other airlines. Um, so yeah, I, I I flew first class on Virgin as a percentage higher than anywhere else, and it wasn't because I had the points; it was because it was so cheap to upgrade, and the service was super terrific. The seats were super comfortable. But one time I was up in first class, and we actually pulled away from the the gate a little bit, and then all of a sudden there was some kind of not a not a uh, unpleasant commotion, but uh, like some kind of you know thing with the phone and. And they're like, hey, hey, let's go back. And they went back to the gate. And some poor sap who had a connecting flight that was late, they went back to the gate. I'd say it set us back about three minutes. They went back to the gate and let this guy on the plane. And this wow. guy, this guy looked like he won the lottery because, <laughs> yeah. you know, he didn't never was, hear about that. Never. I've never seen it before. I mean, maybe I've never seen it before because I wasn't in first class. But I mean, I think even in coach, you can kind of tell <laughs> no, if, yeah, they, if they're, I've plane, never seen that. If the plane stops backing up and goes forward again. Uh, and it was a nice thing, and I was happy for it because the three minutes. What's the difference? The three minutes and coming out of it was coming back from SFO to Philly, and so you're probably going to wait that yeah, time long... waiting to take off anyway. But for that poor guy who almost missed his flight, uh, they just it was you know thousands of dollars oh, yeah. in happiness for that guy. And I was I like, mean I've oh. seen I've seen much more of the sort of the opposite version of that story where the the plane isn't even pushed back from the gate, but they just close the door and they will not open it, even though the person's there, the plane is still there and the door is closed. And so it's just, they will not reopen it for those people, not with Virgin, but with like countless other airlines. I've seen that. Yeah. And they were like, and the, the flight attendants were so nice. They were like, Hey, Hey, you're here. You're on. Don't worry. You don't have to run anymore. Take your time. Go find your seat. <laughs> Do you want us to bring you a drink? And they were like, he was like, this is amazing. Okay, sure. Yes. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll take a Coke, you know, and it but, was... But to your point, that was sort of like, that's also definitely um, a part of sort of the overall experience with Virgin. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if they just, if they hired um, like from a different crop of, of people in the right. industry or whatnot, but people generally didn't seem to hate their hate their jobs and hate their lives when they're working at Virgin, whereas they do, uh, you know, uh, very often, it seems like on many other airlines. Yeah, the big ones. And I think Alaska, and it's like, to, to your point, I, I would compare Alaska to Southwest. I I haven't flown Alaska a lot. Yeah. I've flown it, I think, at least twice to uh, when there was the XOXO conference in Portland. Right. Because it coincided with um, XOXO, at least t for three years, coincided with um, the tail end of the iPhone introduction events in September, where just by somewhat coincidence, or I guess m not quite total coincidence, but Apple targeting like the second week of September for iPhone events and XOXO targeting the end of the second week for XOXO. Um, at least twice for me to go to XOXO, it made more sense to fly out to San Francisco at the beginning of the week, wait, and then fly San Francisco to Portland instead of flying all the way back to Philadelphia and then to Portland. Um, yep. And Alaska was like, you know, was the best airline you know, had the most flights for that. So I've flown Alaska at least twice and I would compare it to Southwest. It's, 
Yeah, uh, it's fine. It's, it's fine. I mean, Southwest, uh, I've flown it a lot, actually, and I, I like it. Um, it's sort of like, um, you know, it's like a nice commuter bus in the sky, right? Because yeah. they don't have assigned seats, and but you get like sort of these numbers, and you stand, and then you get on the plane, you can just pick whatever seat you want, and it's like very simple. Um, you know, you always, I, I think you always get the same type of plane, so that that's sort yeah. of a similar experience. Um, but again, I mean that. It's nice, but it cannot compare it to what Virgin Virgin America like is like. The one that does uh, supposedly, which I have not been on yet, I wonder if you have, uh, is the JetBlue Mint experience. Nope. Um, we don't have. Jet- I've not been on that. Or they, maybe we do. We have JetBlue, but they they don't fly anywhere I go out of Philly. I think. Yeah, and I think I think San Francisco has JetBlue as well, but I don't think the Mint thing is currently uh, in play, or at least it's not like if I would take JetBlue, I think I've taken it once before, and I've taken it to New York because obviously most of the time I would take Virgin. Um, but I don't think the Mint uh, service operates between San Francisco and New York. Hopefully they change that maybe with the Virgin news, but it's like LA to New York I think has it, and people rave about it when they take that. They they say it's at least as good as Virgin, if not better. I I don't really know, um, you know. Know, all the all the perks and everything, having not taken it before, but uh, I guess it's that's one to look forward to potentially. Mm-hmm. And it's just an industry, and and I, it's you you made it in your column. You made it a, a sort of comparison to like Apple and Dell or or something like that. And maybe oh, yeah. Alaska is maybe more like Lenovo. You know, where like a ThinkPad is a nice laptop, but it's not right. it's not a it's not a Mac. You know, it's it's what happens if somebody really tries to make something really good in an industry where that was fine is generally considered good. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Wow. You Um, got really lucky. You know, my, my fight was flying. It was more or less on time. We landed more or less on time and, and none of my luggage got lost. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It was, it was funny. We were, um, I was chatting actually with a, in our internal work slack, uh, with some people about the news. And of course, everyone's sort of outraged right when it hits. And so, like, there's this long thread going on. And that was the thing that I quoted a coworker of mine, Ken, was like, uh, you know, comparing it to, um, yeah, sort of the, the PC versus Mac thing, which I thought would be fun because, of course, that always, uh, you know, draws, um, such heated debate on both sides um, for that. Whenever you compare anything to, uh, to to that situation, but I mean, I think it does feel fairly apt. Um, you know, having been myself, uh, you know, a longtime PC user when I was growing up, and then switching to the Mac, and just like I was PC user, and it was fine. And like, yeah, I would get a faster PC, and sometimes, uh, you know, Windows would break down, and and that would suck. But when it worked, it was fine. Uh, and then, you know, it's. Uh, it was a totally different experience once I switched over. Yeah, it's. I mean, do you have AirPods? I'm, I'll bet you do. Oh yeah, I love the AirPods. All right, so I do too. It's my favorite. My favorite thing in the last few years, I think. Yeah, seriously, same. I love them so much. But that's it, and epitomizes the, what Apple stands for to me, which is let's try to make this as nice as possible, even if it's so such a simple thing as just putting two AirPods in your ear and having them just work when you hit play on your phone. Yep. And and just taking it to like just just keep going into tenths of a decimal ninety nine point nine 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 percent nice ninety nine point nine 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 percent nice and sweating detail <laughs> right. after detail that's the Apple way and and it's not like Apple's perfect I'll, my favorite example from recent years of Apple totally falling short on this is the remote control for the new Apple TV oh yeah right yeah, which totally. is like right. how does how did this ever come out of Apple as okay because this is so it, it is fine. 
and it's not <laughs> you know what I mean and it's not right it's not like I, a, I, it's not like a Comcast remote with 127 buttons, right? <laughs> right. It is Apple-like in certain ways, but it's totally un-Apple-like in other ways. And it's Apple-like in certain ways, although like, I feel like everyone who has one has the exact same complaint, and that complaint is that you never know if you're holding it right side up or upside down. Right. And like, how did... How did just, you know, just user right. testing, right. even with amongst Apple employees, how did that not come up? I mean, that's right. like the first thing that comes up for everyone. Right. Uh, but uh, to me, Virgin was shooting for the AirPods-like experience from check-in to, you know, getting off the plane. That's what Virgin st- still stands for while they while they exist. But And, and – Something like Alaska or Southwest, which I'm I'm a fan of. I'm a big fan of. I've flown tons of miles on Southwest. I don't anymore, just because they've sort of dropped nonstop routes between the cities that I go to. And I'm as the the longer and more I fly, the more resistant I am to taking anything other than a nonstop. Yeah. Um, but I really I do like them, and I know that they're not luxurious. But I, the main reason I like them is that that they do seem to hire really nice people. And the planes are very consistent. The uh, Southwest right. plane is always clean and always exactly the same. But it's nothing like Virgin, which was trying to say, let's make this really nice. Let's make being in a coach seat like a decent, humane experience. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that's really a bummer about it um, is, you know, so when Virgin launched, I, I remember it very well in San Francisco. There was a lot of uh, pomp and circumstances. There is with many sort of Richard Branson affiliated things. Um, but, you know, deservedly so. And the, the whole criticism at the time, though, was like, yeah, it's a great experience, but they'll never be able to keep this going. They're not going to be able to run it profitably. And um, this is just not the way the airline industry works, um, you know, in this day and age. And, you know, I think they were running um, unprofitably for a long time. Time, I do think that they eventually turned a profit or they were very close to it. And so there was some hope, you know, that like, look, you can actually build an airline with a great experience that actually makes business sense as well. Um, and then, of course, that just got thrown out the window and they merged. I mean, and all airlines continue to uh, constantly merge um, and continue to constantly charge for more things for overhead storage, just adding on fee after fee after fee. And that's just the, you know, that's the state of the industry. And Virgin, it seemed like, was trying to. To buck that trend, and it ultimately, you know, just didn't didn't end up doing it. Uh, we'll see how Alaska uh, sort of takes takes the uh, takes the mantle, but uh, that's what's the real bummer about it. It just uh, it it sort of showcases that I think it just probably can't ever ever work. It seems like a lot of people I know, and it does make some sense, but it's uh, to me key to the, the continuing. I don't even know if I want to say success because I'm not quite sure how profitable they are, but the continuing dominance of the the major mediocre carriers, your Americans, Deltas, Uniteds, et cetera, yep. is um, that they large, you know, for obvious reasons, they they largely depend on regular frequent flyers, right? And people who once you start racking up points on a certain airline, so many you're, people you're locked in. Yeah. So I I don't feel that way. I've got Platinum status I on American, I, and which is pretty nice, and it gets me a couple of perks, and I've got miles I can cash in, whatever. But every time I book a flight, I still search for other airlines just to look, and if I found something better or cheaper on a on a different airline, like I still check to see if Southwest is restored a couple of non-stops to San Francisco every day. I, I look every once in a while. Like I would think about going back to Southwest on certain flights, especially if I could, and 
and or if I could get a better time of day or something like that. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm in the same boat as you. I am not sort of beholden to any sort of point system. I have the Virgin points, of course, but as we just talked about, like they didn't go all that many places, so obviously I would have to take other airlines all the time. And uh, so I think I have rewards programs at all of them. Um, and I don't have huge status, but I have status at some of them. I would say I fly quite a bit. And uh, but I'm not one of those people who you know is so adamant about. Um, maintaining that versus just maintaining a good experience. That said, I do know people who are the exact opposite. I know people who take flights to and from New York City just to maintain their status level. Like, they don't actually... They don't actually uh, stay overnight in right. the city. They just do a round-trip flight on one day just to be able to maintain their status, which sounds absolutely insane. <laughs> I It's just not that important to me. And I just don't get that much for it. You know, like, even as a platinum status person on American like I still don't get I still have would have to pay to join their quote unquote admirals club to get into the right. the lounges like right. and I tend not to need lounges because I tend to just fly nonstop from home to my destination my destination to home and the only time I ever really need or wish I had access to a lounge is when my flight's delayed right. if I get to the airport on time and the flight is significantly delayed and I've got, you know, two or three hours to burn, well, then it would be nice to be in a lounge. You know, in some yeah. places I can get in the Amex lounge, but uh, other airports don't have one. But it's not, I don't even get it. I have platinum status and I still don't get it. So it doesn't make any sense to me why people are so loyal like that. But it really does seem to screw the upstart airlines. Like they can't, that like one of the reasons they can't get traction is people are like, I've heard Virgin is nice, but I've got points on United. So. Here I go. Yep. Yeah. It's uh it's it's quite a racket that they that they run. And like, you know, I think uh you know, there's certain other airlines that go internationally that are that are obviously very nice. Um I'm actually getting ready to go to, to London and I'm gonna be on uh, Virgin Atlantic. It's sort of sister thing. Yeah. It was like the sister thing, but they weren't exactly, you know, affiliated for a long time. Their points didn't even transfer. I think they do now, but um I think they set it up that way to make it easier to have happen what actually happened, which was to yeah, sell, right. sell one or the other with without selling the other. Yeah, and Branson wrote like a, you know, a postmortem or whatever and you know, sort of made some reference to it, you know, like uh, let, losing a child. Um, and uh, but it, it, there was all sorts of issues um, you know, with his, with his ownership of it um, and whether or not he could have actually blocked anything. It seems like no, and so that's what happened. I've never flown Virgin Atlantic, but I would love to. And my favorite story about that and it relates to the show, is way back in the day uh, when Dan Benjamin and I were reviewing all the James Bond movies, we were talking uh, about... I know where you're... Yes. We were talking yes. about Quantum of Solace. Yes, I was just going to bring that up. Yep. And uh, Bond is is on en, en route from England to... Uh, <laughs> right. Where was he going? Somewhere in South America or, or the Caribbean, right? Uh, yeah, because he's with... Um He's with the the elder gentleman, yeah. right? And the, yeah, and they're having a drink. Yeah, and 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 he's bereft, and he's he's getting tanked at a. There's a bar in the plane, and he, yep. and it, with a bartender, and he's sitting at the bar drinking Vesper martinis. He, I don't know, like eighteen of them or something. Uh, and it's a beautiful <laughs> looking bar. And Dan and I are like, it was a cool scene, you know. And it's it, it's it's kind of unusual to see Bond actually get 
get tank. He's always drinking, but he never seems to be drunk. And here he is, right. you know, drinking himself into a stupor. Uh, but we were like, how unrealistic is it that there was a nice bar on a commercial air flight? And then all these people wrote to me like, oh, no, no. They have it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were there. like, that That's was real. actually shot on a real Virgin Atlantic plane. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, I've got to get on that yes. plane. That, I mean, yeah, I've been on them. That's uh, 100% legitimate. They have those bar areas, and it's amazing. Uh, it's not usually as uh, quiet as it was, I would say, in that scene. Right. Um, there's usually much more people or activity around it. But, um, yeah, that's that's <laughs> legitimate. It's it's pretty amazing. <laughs> that was my some of my favorite feedback ever. Where we were both, like, totally preposterous. Who would ever have a commercial airplane, <laughs> airplane with something like that? It's like something out of the 1960s, and and all these people wrote to us, and they're like, "Oh yeah, it is, it is real, and it is nice, and it's fantastic." Um, yeah, and yeah, the thing with Virgin is, so I rarely Virgin Atlantic, I rarely take it because it's for well, some reason it ends up being usually far more expensive than British uh, British Airways, um, and I just we just so happened to find a ticket that was roughly the same price, and so uh, we decided to book that because uh, you haven't taken Virgin, yeah. but if you ever go to London in uh, at Heathrow, they have an amazing amazing lounge too it's probably it's the probably the best lounge i've ever been in um including you can get a haircut you know you can shower <laughs> you can uh <laughs> that's pretty nice you, they have a spa they have all this amazing stuff there the shower would be nice because sometimes for whatever reason when you fly cross country especially for you because you're coming from the west coast i always feel like it's been like three days since I, when i get off the plane like in, yeah. in europe i always feel like man that felt like it was 72 hours yeah <laughs> yes um so yeah, I highly recommend that if uh, if you ever are going overseas. All right, let me take a break here and thank our first friend of the show, our good friends at Squarespace. You guys know Squarespace. It's the best place to go to make a website, register a domain, anything like that. Uh, when you make your next move, you're going to need a website. Why not start it at Squarespace? They've got beautiful templates. They've got beautiful types of sites to choose from to start. So if you're making an online store, you can start with a store and then choose a template from there. If you're making a podcast, you can start with something like a podcast and boom, you've got a podcast site. You didn't do any work. You can host your podcast right there from Squarespace. Uh, you name the type of site, you can build it with Squarespace. And I say this, this is what I think is the, the resistance people might have to Squarespace is you say, well, everybody signs up for Squarespace and you choose from a handful of templates and then my site's going to look like a Squarespace site because it's not like that. They've got so many templates to choose from and so many ways to customize them that you don't even know when you're looking at a Squarespace site. Uh, I was just looking at a, I, I mentioned this on Daring Fireball last week. There's a new cheesesteak place pretty near our place here in Philadelphia called Cleaver's. Really great new sandwich shop here. Uh, I was looking at their, their website to place a takeout order. And uh, one of the things you click on to see the menu loaded, instead of as a page, loaded as a standalone image. And I could see the URL and I could see it was hosted at Squarespace. I was like, whoa. And all of a sudden I view sourced and look. And their whole site, which is a really nice site, but doesn't look anything like any other site I've ever seen. It's very much strongly branded like the restaurant built with Squarespace. But that makes total sense. Why would they waste time uh, doing something outside their expertise, like building a website, when they could just do it at Squarespace and stick to building a great restaurant. So keep them in mind, next time you need a website for anything, check out Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com, you get a free demo. And once you sign up, remember this code, Gruber, just my last name, G-R-U-B-E-R, -E and you will get 10% off your purchase. My thanks to them for their continued support of this podcast. 
All right, next next item on my list at least is uh, your reaction to the new MacBook Pros. Which, yeah. So, um, and I know you have thoughts on this as well. And and you, sir, the one thing that you linked to, which I thought was interesting, was a, f- a few weeks ago, um, sort of a poll, right, of people yep. how they feel about it. Um, and so my general take is pretty straightforward. I just. I don't hate the touch bar. I just think it's totally useless. Um, I have a few apps, you know, that are sort of tailored for it, including things like Pixelmator, um, handful of other things, uh, a bunch, a bunch more that aren't, of course. Um, but I honestly just switched the sort of um, the fluid uh, setting to be back to just the standard sort of F and. Um, or no, I didn't. Sorry, I didn't use the the F keys. I used uh, the function keys. I used the um, the actual brightness and all that stuff because I like. I just found myself going to that like way, way more than I would use any of the, the sort of dynamic options that the touch bar would off, offer. And I just, I don't. I I have a hard time. I know it's early, but I have a hard time ever seeing that it becomes like this great feature of the MacBook Pro. Do you disagree with that? Uh, no, I don't disagree. I, I feel like it exists. I feel like the touch bar as we have it right now exists in a sort of no man's land where you cannot, I, I don't think it's fair to trash it. And I don't think it's fair to say this is great. I feel like it's, it's nuanced. Uh, now that said, I don't own one. So I've got the, I spent about two or three weeks when the, they first came out playing yep. with the review units i had multiple of them but um mostly spent the time with the 13 inch because that's the size i like um and i love touch id uh yes i don't is, use the yes. hard i don't use the escape key as much as some people do but i do use it and i do still even now even as somebody who doesn't use the escape key all the time i question whether they should not have left a hardware traditional escape key and made the touch bar just run from escape have a escape key in the upper left corner the mm-hmm. touch id in the upper right and have the touch bar exist between the two i think right i think that because it would have given it more symmetry as well because it's you know they have one button on one side why not have the escape button even if they changed the size of it and made it square sort of like the right. the touch ideas but make it something you can actually click and i think that would have i i do feel like just reading twitter reading feedback from readers and stuff like that i feel like an an awful lot of the criticism of the touch bar relates to the the escape key um as for the utility of the touch bar itself it's hard to say i do i i I do i remember thinking it was really nice to adjust the brightness with the touch bar and i but i find it i find that so much more tedious honestly to do it that way um you know, so here's before I switched it back to being sort of the brightness as um as sort of default button. So it has like you know brightness and and things like bring up expose and stuff like that. You can you, there's a setting that you can you know move it to uh, rather than being the dynamic touch bar. It's it's sort of your old standard buttons. And I did that because I was actually using I think it's when you hit the function the FN key. I think that would bring up the old ones, and I was just using that all the time because even though there are, there is a brightness button on the dynamic version of um, the touch bar when you hit it 
then you, yeah, then you have to scroll sort of up or down. And so often I just want like, you know, one little nit more of brightness, not like, I don't need the sort of scrubbing, you know, to see uh, all the way down or all the way up what the difference is. It's like one of those features that just seems like a cool option on paper, but when you actually use it, it's much less useful. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I can see the mixed feelings about it. I, 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 I feel I, I feel like the biggest thing that it needs is haptic feedback. I feel like yeah. Um, and I was reminded of it just recently because I, I I'm a I'm I haven't used it a lot because I don't personally have a need, but I'm fascinated by the new Clips app, and I think it's I think it's really well done. Even though I realize some of the initial complaints from other people are that they're a little confused by it, but I yeah. I, I think it's only confusing at first because it's ambitious and tries to do a lot. And so there's a lot in there, but I feel like everything that they've done, once you get it, it's pretty logical. But the, the, the thing that made me think of the touch bar is when you've got your, you've got multiple, um, uh, clips in a project in a row. Okay. And if you want to rearrange them, you, you can force touch on one and you get like a little, you get the haptic feedback as you drag it along to rearrange clips in the timeline. Right. And it feel it's like so you want to move the one that's in the fourth spot to the second spot as you drag it right. between second and third you get a little it rumbles and you can feel it right yeah you yeah. can feel like it's like you're dragging it over physical slots and it's so yep. nice and I just thought boy the touch bar would feel so much better if it had a little bit of feedback like that. And that speaks to, I think it was uh, Michael Lopp, right, who wrote yeah. a post about, um, you know, the the usability factor of the touch bar, because it's almost impossible to use without looking at it, which is also very odd, right? right. Like, because that's not what that row of buttons has been for the entire life of a MacBook. Um, and so, to your point, like, if they had some sort of haptic feedback where you could actually tell what you were doing while still keying on the screen, like for scrubbing or, or doing some other um, action, that would be... <laughs> significantly better than having to look down because you don't know where where you are yeah and i do feel like that's part of it you know like um it, some of the ones in the middle i almost never use like i don't on the traditional f key row like i don't yep. really i almost never adjust the brightness of my keyboard keyboard yeah you know Same. sometimes it's like i'll be on like a, a, a dark flight and I'm all right yeah I'll, I'll adjust the brightness of my keyboard um, yep. but I'll just do it once and it's fine for me to be looking at it but for like micro adjustments to the brightness of the screen I, I am I, I can do it without looking just by going up with my left hand to the top left I know where right. the escape key is and the next two are brightness and even if I'm wrong even if I go up and I hit brightness up even though I wanted brightness down I can see what happened right away and I know I'm right next door and just slide my finger and Yep, and do that without looking. And I, and I'm I'm with you with that, and I'm the exact same way with volume. And both of those are now problematic on the touch bar. Um, you know, they look nice, like that nice you know little scrubber and everything, but it just uh, I I do not like it at, at all. I mean, I don't hate hate it, um, but I just don't see. Like I said, I switch back to sort of the the old standards and like you said they're not physical buttons and there's no haptic feedback so they're harder to use so I have to actually pay attention to what I'm doing and then I also I do think I agree that uh, Touch ID is by far the best part of it um, but the weird thing there is that I almost never get to use it because I do have an Apple Watch and I'm always wearing the Apple Watch and that unlocks faster yeah. <laughs> uh, than the Touch ID does so before you can even reach up to the Touch ID it's done so right. there's no point. Yeah, well, it's good for purchases or whatever. Yeah, but, for purchases. But logging but in, yes. logging in is the big is 
you know, the one that you do, I, I log in and out or, you know, open it from sleep and log in way more frequently than I buy stuff. Yeah. Um, um, and so what do you, do you, why do you think that they did the touch bar? Because like, so part of the thing that I wrote was, you know, sort of the, the title of it was the great laptop, laptop stagnation. Um, the notion being that we've sort of reached peak form factor of the laptop. And I know that's dangerous to say for sort of any technology that we've reached peak because there's always going to be some level of innovation. And I think I made the, the quip that maybe we'll have Phil Schiller on stage saying, can't innovate anymore, my ass, uh, when, they, when they do something new with the, with the MacBook. But like my only line of thinking is either they're going to one day try to make it a bigger screen area, like the keyboard board tray be being more maybe like haptic uh digital keys um you know something like that uh or the, or not even like replacing the entire keyboard but just making that a bigger area um you know for for different things that they can dynamically do i mean that has to be the, some line of thinking right it can't just be this this touch bar which isn't that interesting i guess i don't know but i find it worrisome if their goal is to replace hardware keyboard with a virtual keyboard because I I can't see how that would like whatever my I kind of still prefer my older MacBook keyboard to the new one um, with the shallow keys yeah with the newer but yeah, it's the deeper keys but after two or three weeks my feelings became, went from I like the old one better to oh I have mixed feelings because I also feel though that my old one they feel loose and jank janky right and whereas right. The, the new ones even though they have shallower feel so Clicking them feels worse because it's shallow, but just resting my fingers on them feels better because they don't wiggle around. They feel more premium. Um, yep. And I, I had a problem at first. I had a really weird problem, and I can't explain why. But the the new keyboards in the MacBook and the Mac, the just plain MacBook and the MacBook Pro, yep, have bigger keys and right. less space between the keys. The keyboard right. takes up the exact same amount of area. And so the distance between just pick two keys, like the center of the A key and the center of the F key are is exactly the same. So your fingers resting on the home row are exactly in the same position. But for some reason, because the keys are bigger, I felt for a while like my fingers were spread out more. Yeah, I, I get that. Um, but I think that's just something I needed to get used to. I especially notice it because I use the iPad keyboard all the time, and that is those are smaller keys, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's when I really notice it. And I honestly, I think I prefer the iPad keyboard. As weird as that sounds, I just it's not it's not a perfect keyboard, but maybe it is. Like you're talking about, sort of the size of the right. keys, just something about it feels more familiar than typing on the newer keyboards. Yeah, I, I can kind of see that. Like you're talking about, like the smart keypad yeah, cover yeah, the one that um, apple made yeah. it's almost like the, on the smart keyboard cover it 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 celebrates the shallowness of the movement whereas yep. on the macbook it's like man i still wish that these keys went in further a yes. little bit but i can live with that um i really re- the, the the difference between my feelings about the new macbook pro keyboard and the previous generation macbook pro keyboard i have thoughts but the thoughts are much narrower than the thought between what we have now and a hypothetical virtual touch bar that was the whole keyboard. Yeah. Like, well, what do you think about this? Like, so the other thing that I, that I've uh, chatted with some folks about is the notion of one way that I think they could have alleviated some of the touch bar 
criticism is like also just putting it at the bottom of the keyboard. So in other words, keeping the function row as it was and just adding a new row because like, and especially on the MacBook. So here's the thought here. Um, Right now, they made the the touch pa- the touchpad itself right massive. It's pretty big now. Yeah. Um, it, I think it's bigger than it needs to be for anything. And so you could shave that down a little bit. And I think if you wanted to do some sort of touch bar type thing, put it just above the touchpad and sort of make that the whole touch area. Especially because Apple's whole thing, as we all know, is that they're not going to do a touchscreen um, MacBook or iMac, MacBook Pro, anything. Um, and the weirdness of this whole dynamic right now is that they made a touch area that's so close to the screen, but isn't the screen. And, you know, they make, they have the, the famous sort of picture of like, you know, with a crossed out arm or like pointing at the screen because it's just not ergonomic. Right. And it's not that much different in my book to sort of have to go up to this top row and have to sort of manipulate touch uh, that way, I would have been much more happy if where my hands already rest, sort of at the bottom, you tried to do something with the touch bar. I don't know. My, I, just looking down at my MacBook as, I, as you say this, my problem with that is that my hands would cover it most of the time. I think the advantage of having it at the top is that you can see it. Your hands don't cover it, whereas this way your hands cover it until you go to look at it. But maybe that's okay. I don't know. I, I don't know if they've if they tinkered with that idea or not, but maybe that's okay because it doesn't matter if you see it or not, because by the time you go to do something on it, you are already moving your hands. I don't know. Right. Especially if you have to, I mean, if they acknowledge that you have to be looking at it to use it already. Um, and I just, I feel like, I don't know. Um, I, I could see, I think some people push back on that, like with the notion of, well, what, your palms could rest on it and it could mess it up or something. Obviously Apple has all the palm detection stuff for the iPad already. I'm sure they could figure that out. But, um, uh, I just think, like, for certain types of things, certainly some of the things that they were showing off, like the DJing and all that kind of, you know, uh, fun stuff, uh, you might not be, you know, really needing to use the keyboard as, as much as sort of the touch area to toggle controls and stuff. And so in that situation, it might make a little bit more sense. But I don't know. I mean, I assume, like you said, they, they maybe tried something or, or thought about it at least, and they determined that that wasn't the way to go. Yeah. I don't know. Um, what do you think about the weight and the size? The wind and the size are great. Uh, I mean, it's not so. I have right now. I have a I have a bunch of machines. Um, I have a older MacBook Pro for that's my work machine. That sort of was um, uh, given to me by the, uh, the the people who dish out computers at work. And so that's a, I think like a two and a half or three year old MacBook, so an older style right. MacBook Pro. Then I have the MacBook, the small um, thirteen inch one, and then I got the touch. Uh, touch bar macbook pro and so my other issue there is that while it is obviously more svelte um and lighter than the the older macbook pro i have it's not you know anywhere near as light and as felt as the macbook itself and so if i'm going somewhere where uh i would want sort of the most portability Obviously, I know that most people don't have three options, of course. But when people would ask, like, well, I just want the most portability, I would say go with the MacBook. I mean, it's it's still – the main problem there now is the one USB-C port. Um, and uh, honestly, you know, I carry around the dongle, of course, and it's mildly annoying from time to time. Um, but I'm not sure it would be even be that much better if it, just, if it had four USB-C ports because USB-C is still not – doesn't seem quite as ubiquitous, certainly for the things like I have to, you know – loop in things for work all the time and, and sort of hook up different USB-C stuff. And I almost always need a converter still. Right. Um, 
so I'm just not sure that that would even sort of alleviate the pain. So my biggest problem with the the older MacBook, and I have the one that you know came out a couple of years ago, so it's it's fairly slow. But I think a lot of people said that this sort of newer version that came out um, uh, several months ago is uh, significantly faster. So I would go with that one. Uh, the thing I like the most about it, and I think it speaks to your point that we're sort of approaching peak form factor is, and it was the to me the part that made my my personal 2014, I think I get mixed up at how old a two year old, I think I got it in 2014. Anyway. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, my 2014, 13 inch MacBook pro, the biggest difference to me and it's, it's petty and it has nothing to do with actual computing, but it's the ease with which I can open this, the display that the display just lifts up perfectly. And if I want to adjust it slightly, I just put one finger on it on the new ones. That is, and yep. and it just it's just absolute the perfect amount of resistance where it never moves if I don't want it to and when I do want to move it it's the least amount of energy possible and it makes my old one feel like it's way too hard and heavy to lift and to me that's it, that's the that's the the ideal that the new MacBooks have ever more closely approached to I don't know about the the regular MacBook like when you lift a MacBook is it so light that the whole thing lifts up or can you do it with yeah, one it's hand? A- Right. I, I would say it's a little bit too light for that. I still feel the need to sort of, uh, yeah, like, you know, weigh it down right. a little bit while I'm lifting it up. Whereas the new MacBook Pros, you don't have to do that. The new MacBook Pros, even though it, it, in theory, it's it's worse to be heavier, all things considered. Right. If they could make one that was every bit as fast and powerful as the MacBook, yes, they would do it. They're not going to make it heavier. Just <laughs> Apple is not going to make MacBooks heavier just <laughs> just to make it easier to open them <laughs> right. in the future. But right now, I feel like the MacBook Pros are at this wonderful ideal between the weight of the base, where the keyboard and the battery and everything are, and the lightness of the display and the ability it- to, to lift it up. I agree. And so, right, so the form factor is great, right? It, it's so great that it's like... It's been whittled down to sort of this, this, uh, you know, th- that level of um, sort of perfection for exactly what you're talking about. What else would they possibly do to it beyond like, you know, expanding touch bar and doing other things to it? But it's like, that's the form factor. There's, right. what else are you going to do to that? You can't really change that now. No, I, I don't, I, other than, uh, you know, and again, it's not really a change to the form factor, but in theory, at some point, I presume that they're going to. You know, it, it won't be aluminum forever. I mean, you know, I feel like we the yes, Mac right. the MacBook still has a decade, maybe more ahead of it. Uh, is it going to really be aluminum for twenty or thirty years? I don't know. But so new materials, you know. Uh, but yep, that's, but basically, uh, I do think the form factor as as you know for and for certain tasks, it is a wonderful, wonderful form factor. And I just feel like don't mess with it. And I I do wonder. There's a part of me that wonders if the Touch Bar is basically a mess with it for the sake of messing with it. <laughs> right, uh, right. That's that's exactly what I was basically alluding to in that post. Um, you know, they felt like, look. We're, we're sort of at the perfect storm of two things right now, right? So what we were just talking about, sort of the form factor is we've whittled it down to near perfection, right? And then on the flip side, we have uh, sort of the, the CPUs and the internals are basically not getting that much faster now um, because, you know, <laughs> Moore's, as Moore's Law is, has slowed down, uh, slowed down, we're, we're uh, sort of at the point where it's very hard uh, to rationalize a year-to-year upgrade 
it's hard to rationalize a two year to year upgrade right for a for a MacBook pro um, because it's just not that much faster than the than what the state of the art was two years ago and so we have those two things coming into play and so when Apple's trying to think about well what do we do this year to get um, you know to get people excited about potentially buying the new machine uh, you know you can do you can change the colors of it. They've done that a little bit, of course, with uh, some gold and rose gold options. And uh, I don't think that that really moves the needle, though, on uh, on making someone purchase a new one. And so this touch bar thing, it feels like to me that was, you know, some idea. Like, let's try this. Uh, you know, let's let's see if this is interesting. And that's, uh, I don't know, that's a dangerous game for Apple to play, I think. Uh, I totally agree. And I, I wonder about it. And it is clearly, to me, their most important product. I know we just had the whole thing with the Mac Pro and that there's iMacs coming out and stuff like that. But the MacBooks are clearly the the bread and butter of the Mac lineup. You know, if 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 they had to cut back for some reason, you know, that's the the last Macs to go are going to be the MacBooks. And I wonder, I, I know, you and I have talked about this before, and I know a lot of people obviously have different differing thoughts on this. But like, so the other part, I think, towards the end of the, of that post I wrote was basically... I'm very much in the camp of I would love to just do everything on an iPad. I'm like 90 I'm 95 let's say percent of the way there. The problem is that other 5% matters and so I just can't do it yet. I would love to be in that camp though. Are you I and I know you're definitely, you know, still in the MacBook camp, but if if they could do if they had full sort of parity, maybe not you know not quite as easy to do certain things and vice versa. But if they had sort of full parity in terms of functionality, um, would you want to use an iPad more than you use the MacBook? No, I don't think so. I think the longer time goes on, the the less likely I am to use to to even want to use an iPad. I, I I feel like I have the clarity now, and it might I, I feel like, but I don't feel like I speak to the 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 mass market it's i have so many little things little custom nerd scripts and things that i have set to keyboard shortcuts on my mac that i can't do on the ipad and that even if i wanted to do through workflow or something like that and i'm super super happy that apple bought workflow and seems to want to keep it around and maybe they'll integrate it in the os but like uh uh I have a shortcut that is a system-wide service that I made so that I can convert the selected text in any app from Markdown to HTML. And the key command I made for it is uh, uh, Command-Shift-K. Uh, I don't know why. I forget why. Because M, because Command-Shift-M is like minimize windows. And so I went to K, Mark. I don't know. But okay. I don't even have to think about it. I had to pause to remember it because my fingers just know it. And I've had it for years. Uh, yeah, but you know, so the iPad Pros, like we were just talking about, they you know you can get the the keyboard that's with it, and they you know they have Command and Shift and K still. I guess that in theory they could add that they could add stuff to the system software that would enable something like that in theory, right? But, but the form factor doesn't speak to me either. Like um, uh, last week when I was flying home from San Francisco um, after the 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 shindig at, at Cupertino. Uh, I was at the gate at the terminal and I had a couple, just a couple of minutes before they started boarding and um, somebody DM'd me that I had a typo in a, in a DF post. And instead of fixing it on my phone, I just, I knew I had like a couple minutes. Uh, I just quick took out my MacBook 
from my backpack, opened it, and just without even sitting down, just held it in the palm of my hand and opened it, logged in, fixed it, uh, shut it, put it back in my backpack. Like, I don't see how you could do that on an iPad. I, you could do it, but you wouldn't have the hardware keyboard. There's no way you can just sit there and stand and connect a hardware keyboard and... Yeah, I get that. And and I'm sort of the same way. That's one of the sort of 5% thing is definitely on the writing side of things. So I actually do a lot of writing on the iPad, but I'll sort of write in the in the app Ulysses, and then I basically export it to, to Medium or, or wherever I'm going to publish. And uh, I don't publish, though, from there, because I wait to do some of the formatting stuff that I can just, I feel like I can just have a much better handle on using on a on a MacBook. And so I wait to publish until after there. Um, but that's, that's sort of one of the larger parts of the 5% uh, that is still holding me back. But in, in, my, in my book, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm quite different, I guess, from you in that regard, because I, like my ideal computing experience would be um, where I could go on a trip, not have to take any MacBook with me, just take the, the iPad Pro with the keyboard cover. Um, and, you know, I do it right now for short little trips or, you know, just on a daily basis. Like if I'm going to just do email or, um, and then do some reading, uh, and I go to a sort of local cafe, I just love grabbing that thing and walking out the door. Don't have to bring a bag. It's so, it's just, it just feels like this is the way I want to be doing computing in my life. Um, and I don't want to have, uh, you know, even as we were just talking about, even as felt as the MacBooks are now, I just, uh, there's, there's too much going on. I, I like the simplicity of, of doing everything through the iPad. I totally see the appeal of it, but it doesn't, it just doesn't speak to me. Uh, I, you know, and I like iPad, uh, but for me, and again, I'm a big proponent. I have been for years fighting against the argument that it's fundamentally only good for consumption and not for creation. I've argued it, but for me personally, that actually is very true that I, I, I tend to use it. I actually have left the cover off mine for a while now and I just have it with no cover and I read tons on it and I read lots of Twitter and I bookmark things, uh, to post it during fireball later from a different machine from it. But it's, I, I tend not to do any actual typing on it, but I can see the appeal. I totally see the appeal. And I, I would totally see the appeal for long form writing too. I feel like the longer the thing you're writing, the more, yep. the more pleasant it is. And like when I wrote, like I did, I enjoyed writing my review of the iPad Pro on the iPad Pro because it was a long review. Uh, and I do kind of like that it is naturally distraction free. I find I never use the distraction free full screen modes on the Mac for any app ever because I find that it's just, just gets in the way when I want to get out of it. Whereas on the iPad, it's totally natural. It's, you know, and I'm a big believer in that in general. I feel anything you tack on to a system afterwards is never as good as if it was there from the beginning. So full screen mode on the Mac to me, I use it for video and that's about it. But otherwise, to me, it feels tacked on because the Mac wasn't designed at the start. It was designed to have everything in Windows that are overlapping. You can drag around, whereas the iPad was designed from the ground up to have full screen apps. Yeah, and I mean, I so I do a lot of you know anything that I write. Basically, like you said, sort of that's that's longer than just a blurb or something like that. I I try to do on the iPad, and I just it's something about it reminds me of like when I was a kid growing up, going to my father's office, and like they had typewriters and just uh, using the typewriter, right? I mean, I know it's obviously very yeah. different, but something about this focus thing, yeah. and it's almost like you know there's a there's a blank sheet of paper in front of you, and and the words are are magically appearing on it. Yeah, and it, most things in my life. Most things in my life are uh, that I'm in control of are a complete mess. Like my desk is usually just a complete Andy Rooney style mess of <laughs> papers and 
odd objects and boxes and it, all sorts of stuff. Um, so I like lots of things I have are a complete mess. Other things though, I try to keep obsessively neat. I'm like the daring fireball homepage would be a fine example. There's no right. clutter. You know, I, I aspire to that. I wish that I had the organizational, uh, ability and the, the wherewithal to have everything in my life be like that. I, I, when I see pictures of people who have these minimal offices, I covet them. I, I do. I see the appeal. Um, and I do, I, I look at my Mac with all of these windows. Like if I go to expose or whatever and see how many apps I have running and how many windows are actually overlapping. Uh, sometimes my Mac looks like a mess. And I do, I like the way that the iPad, even if you open a second app, I love how neat it is that if you have like a message, uh, the messages app on the right in a narrow iPhone width column and yep. you're, other thing, whether it's Safari or your writing app in a square to the left of it. I love how neatly that's organized where there's no overlap. There's no shadows from windows showing depth. It's just two uh, rectangles perfectly aligned. I love that. And I can see how that is soothing, mentally soothing to people and, and appealing. Um, since it's sort of the perfect segue and I, there may, might, might not be much to talk about, but I'm just curious, like, so obviously Apple released the sort of, you know, the, the cheaper iPad version, um, but they didn't do anything, uh, you know, as was rumored by many various sites, uh, for actual new, uh, iPad hardware. And so our, I presume now that we're at the end of April, we're not going to see any sort of event before WWDC. Uh, so do they do that at WWDC? Do they wait for the fall? I don't know. It, it's it's very intriguing to me that the supply chain rumor mill seemed to think it was going to happen, you know, right. like either last month or the you know the first week of April or something like that. And I agree with you. I don't. I don't. Hear, and I don't hear any rumblings to the ground that there's anything coming before WWDC. Uh, so I I almost feel like it's something that maybe they've successfully kept under wraps. Uh, so it could happen at WWDC, but if it, if they wait until the fall. I almost feel like they've got to wait till October because it sounds like so af- after iPhone, right? Because I don't think they'd want to share the stage with iPhone because it sounds like they've right. got a very exciting iPhone to unveil. And right. if it's on schedule, it'll be like the second week of September. As, as I said before, I mean, they've, they've been pretty consistent on that for three or four years. Uh, and I don't think they'd want to share the stage, but they could in theory, you know, it, it, it may not be, it may come naturally if there's, you know, like a shared design language of more, a more edge to edge display. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could make sense to unveil them side by side. I don't know, but it would make more sense to me if they did iPhones in September and iPads in October. And you, but you don't think that they would do it at WWDC? <sighs> I guess they could, but it depends how much these new iPads, which at least some of the, you know, one of them is rumored to be a more edge to edge display where the, right. you know, that the 9.7 inch iPad is still going to be 9.7 inches as a device, but that the screen will be 10 point something inches instead of 9.7 inches because it's going to take up more of the front face. But mm-hmm. that sounds to me like what the rumor is for the iPhone. And if right, it, and they don't want to, they don't want to um, spoil it, right? That they yeah, want the iPhone reveal. to come out first, um, right? But is that? Am I overthinking it? Am I overthinking their, you know, um, willingness to just let the product that's ready to ship first ship first, whether it's the iPhone or not? I don't know. 
Yeah, and if there was some sort of marquee feature in in iOS 11, you know, that was sort of iPad, right. f- more iPad focused, maybe. Um, right. But yeah, there hasn't been much rumors about iOS 11 at all. No, um, even though we're fairly close, um, which is interesting. But well, yeah. other than the fact that there, uh, for a while, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've heard rumors for a while that months ago. Or I guess more or less when iOS 10 came out last WWDC, there after the event was over, there were rumors beforehand that that Apple might unveil some iPad specific, uh, iPad Pro specific features, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that the keynote came and went, and there were none. And then in the aftermath, the word was, well, that got punted from 10.0, but it's going to come in like 10.2 or something, 10.2 or right. 10.3. But we've gotten to 10.3, and it didn't happen. And there's not going to be a 10.4 between now and June because you know all hands are working on iOS 11. Right. Um, so whether that ships in iOS 11.0 or not, or gets punted once again to the first big update, you know, in December or January of 11.2, I don't know, but that's the, but But there've been rumors since like this time last year that they have pro specific iPad pro specific improvements to the OS for multitasking and stuff like that. And if that is the case, then we may have just answered our riddle, right? That they would, they would launch that and presumably they would want to have new iPad pro hardware to show whatever that functionality is off. Um, since the iPad Pro would be relatively old at that point, right? Over a year um, between iterations. Right. Well, and the the 12-inch one, the 13-inch one, would be a year and a yeah, half really old. old. Really old right. at this point. Um, I don't know. But, I mean, both of them launched with, I feel, a lot of headroom to wait for the next version because they really are pretty fast for iPads. I mean, the iP- you know, they're both... Yep. You know, faster than I don't know if they're faster than the current MacBook, but I think they are, and they're certainly faster than the MacBook that you're talking about, the original MacBook with one port. I mean, that's how fast they are. Yep, I'm using the big iPad Pro right now, which I almost never use. Uh, again, speaking to obviously as as we all do, we just buy a bunch of devices, uh, probably more than we need. But um, <laughs> it is nice when you're sort of sitting at a desk. Uh, it's a nice sort of second screen. Yeah, I don't know. So I I feel like they need to though, and I feel like I feel like selling points on changes to the OS to make it a little bit more, you know bring the iPad, especially the iPad Pro, a little bit more towards the Mac in terms of capabilities. Not necessarily copying things from the Mac and how you do it, but just making it easier. Um, I mean, the thing I would like to see them do, or let me take a break, actually. I mean, hold this thought, and I'll take a break, because it's a good good way to keep people in suspense. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I want to talk to you about our next sponsor. I love this company. I love their products, and I, I this is a company that I, I hate to say it, but they shouldn't even be paying me to promote their products because I would sing their praises even if they weren't. And that company is Eero, E-E-R-O. Eero makes Wi-Fi routers for your house. You don't have to choose which one. They just have one model right now. You go, you buy like a three-pack. You plug one of them. They're little white boxes, roughly the size of like an Apple TV or something like that, that almost looks like an Apple design product. They ship with Apple style, really supple. Even like the Ethernet cables they give you in the box are nice. It's like a nice Ethernet cable. It's not like a piece of junk thing that you got from Joe's cables on the corner. Nice cable, nice power cable. You plug it into your router. 
And now you've got, there's your primary Eero base station. Then you take like the other two and you like, maybe your router is on the first floor. You put another one on the second floor and another one on the third floor. Keep them near the steps. Try to minimize how many walls has to go through. And it creates what's called a mesh network through your house. And it is a huge difference. Now, I don't know what, you know, maybe if you live in a, if you live in a studio apartment, guess what? You don't need, really need an Eero. It's a nice base station, but you really only need one. And it's really, it'd be a nice base station for that. But the mesh network thing isn't going to help you out. But if you live in a city like I do, we have four floors. Uh, if you, you, there's really no way to set up one router that I've ever tried uh, that gets a good Wi-Fi signal everywhere in the house. I personally, I just recently uh, upgraded my Comcast service, had Comcast come in, got new internet, Comcast new router. They gave me a router with the, the thing. Uh, in the room where I have it set up in my home office, I get like 150, 200 megabits per second over Wi-Fi. It's amazing. That's an amazing performance. It's like 10 times faster than what I had before. Uh, one floor up, still pretty good. Uh, it's like 50 megabits per second, something like that. But in my master bedroom, this is no shit. I, I swear to God, this is true. I tested this with the speed test app. I get 0 0.2 megabits per second Wi-Fi from that router. So it goes from 200 megabits per second to 0 0.2 megabits per second. So once the Comcast guy was gone and you know I knew I had good internet, I reset up my, my Eros. I put my Eero in there and I put, I only have three. Uh, now I get, still get 200 or so megabits per second in my office from Eero, but my master bedroom is getting 60 megabits per second Wi-Fi. That's how great it is. I cannot be, and I, I didn't have to configure anything. You just, you just follow the instructions in their little app and it, it just configures everything. And they even tell you that uh, it, they talk to each other and they, they fix it up. And, and after you've set it up, like 24 hours later, the service is usually even better because the, the, the Eros have communicated with each other about where they should hand off to each other. Cannot tell you how happy I am with this product. Uh, I recommend it highly. Uh, I, I don't know what else to tell you. If you need Wi-Fi, if you're unhappy with your Wi-Fi, if you need new Wi-Fi, uh, you, you'd be silly not to check it out. That what they do is they recommend one Eero for every thousand square feet of your home. Uh, three packs a good starting point. You can always buy more, and you can hook up 10 in total if you need to. So here's what you do. Go to Eero.com and use the code. Uh, actually, you know what? Forget the code. Screw it. Here's what they've done. They've gotten rid of these codes. And to celebrate their first birthday, what they've done is they've just dropped their prices permanently. So instead of using a code, you just go to Eero.com, and now... You can get a three pack for just three hundred ninety nine dollars. Used to be four ninety nine, and you can get a two pack for two ninety nine. That used to be uh, fifty dollars more. So to get Eero at this new price, just go to Eero.com. and you can get them at Best Buy or even Amazon if you want. They don't care. They don't. They don't even care if you buy them direct. So get if you need Wi Fi, get an Eero. Love this product. I feel like you and I talked about Eero before they were a sponsor yep. of your podcast which is that's nice i remember the first time i re, you know what I'll, I'll get back to my, my the point i wanted to make about ipad i've got my finger in the air this is my reminder i know the point i want to make okay. um but we could go on a digression right now i remember the first time i heard about Eero was i read it in walt mossberg's column uh, uh -huh. and i read his description of it and i knew that i was suffering from the problem that he was talking about at the for years i had an apple airport whatever the best, the best Apple 
I think it's the most, still the most recent one because they haven't updated it in years. Yep. The one that's, Airport Extreme. Yeah, the one that's yep. real tall. Yeah, I have the same one. And I had the same one. Now I have Vero. Same thing. I had it on the second floor, our living room, of a four-floor residence. And it was okay. And it, my office was one floor up, and it got pretty good Wi-Fi. Uh, our master bedroom on the fourth floor, eh, it wasn't bad. It wasn't like it, is, uh, like it was with this Comcast router. Um, but it wasn't great. Um, and, and for whatever reason, our garage on the first floor, one floor down, got no signal whatsoever. I don't know if it's because the, the garage had insulation. I don't know what the heck it was. Um, I read Walt's column, and I was like, this sounds amazing because, A, it solves a problem I have, but, B, he's telling me that I don't have to configure. Just no, you, don't, you don't go into an admin interface and start typing in uh, IP numbers. You don't start picking channels. You don't uh, have to set one of them in bridge mode and one of them in, in something mode. You just hook them up and tap buttons in the app as you hook them up around your house and follow their general advice of you know where best to put them. And then all of a sudden you've got a network that, that every room in your house has good internet. I was like, that sounds so amazing. And it was, it, it was literal, the literal truth. It's the exact experience of using it. And it speaks yeah, anyway. I, the digression would be Walt's announcement that he's, he's retiring. Uh, yeah, obviously uh, significant uh, news within uh, the world in which, in which we in, inhabit. Um, yeah, you know, like, it's funny. When I moved to go, so I was working as a web developer uh, down in San Diego um, and sort of writing on the side uh, just for fun. And at some point, uh, you know, VentureBeat at the time came calling and, you know, wanted me to, to sort of come up and, and consider sort of writing full time. And I just like sort of laugh to myself like thinking like no one can make a living sort of doing that right like i mean you know it's almost like too good to be true um and you know around uh you know the same time there i think there had been uh like uh, a profile or maybe i was even just googling it but just like you know the story of the rise of of walt mossberg sort of getting into obviously it wasn't blogging at the time it was uh for the wall street journal but um sort of making his way uh into this thing that hadn't existed before, right? He was he was covering politics, and then all of a sudden he decided he was going to cover uh, personal technology. And again, not blogging exactly, but you know, not too dissimilar from uh, from I think what uh, sort of the ideal state for a lot of us, certainly yeah. for me at the time. Um, you know, that's what I aspired something to do, something like that, right? Uh, I just read. I, I will. I swear to God, put it in the show notes. There's. Uh, interview i think it just came out today but if not it came out last night uh, an interview with with walt in the columbia journalism review right i haven't read it yet but i saved um, it as well yeah he was in 1991 he was the lead national security correspondent for the wall street journal which is the, the columbia journalism review says is literally one of the most coveted spots in all of newspaper journalism i mean it it's probably you know you could count it on one hand as the one of the most prestigious gigs, you know, the journal, the New York times, wall street or Washington post and a handful of the top jobs there would be something like that because national security is of utmost importance. And when something breaks, it, it's, you know, it becomes, you know, you, you own the top, you know, top right corner of the front page of the newspaper. And I mean, and there's no breaking news is more important than national security news. Uh, right. 
So he had the job. He obviously had decades ahead of him in his career, and he gave it up to create what was then unheard of, which was an, in a national major newspaper, a personal technology column. Everybody, you know, like like the CGR said that most people in the industry, you know, news people were like, what, what did he do? Why did he get this terrible demotion? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of like what the equivalent thing would be today. Uh, and it's hard to come up with something because like, because honestly, it's hard to, it's hard to envision something that would sort of become as pervasive as, uh, as just technology in general, right? Like you could say like, oh, I'm going to um, stop the Apple because I want to write about Bitcoin. Um, And, you know, people would be like, but you're on the, you know, you're covering the most valuable company in the world. Why do you want to write about sort of this this nascent technology thing? And, and, you know, like, that's a... It was one hell of a leap uh, of faith that he did. And obviously, like I said, he sort of, you know, was the the pinnacle of doing that. Um, And I think, you know, the whole generations of... And gadgets, Gizmodos, um, you know, all the people who were doing uh, gadget reviews, certainly, um, you know, that that was the pinnacle. And then, um, you know, just in general, sort of writing a technology column. Yeah, I, can't, sort of, I can't say it better than him. Here's Walt's exact words in this interview. There were a bunch of computer columns in a lot of other newspapers, and certainly there were computer magazines. But these were all written by geeks for geeks. My pitch to the journal was that I wanted to write a column that didn't use a lot of jargon, that treated people with respect for their intelligence. And I think that can not be understated that that was the gist of Walt's – it still is the gist of Walt's writing – that it was never computers for dummies. It was – it was – his angle was that the problem was with the complicated stuff, not with the people who can't understand the complicated stuff. Um, and that it did two things. One, help people figure out how to make this journey into technology by telling them what was good and what was bad on the market, explaining when some new development happened, what it meant, what it was, who it might be for. That was one of my goals. And the other one was to use the power of the platform and the voice that I would have in this column because it was an opinion column in a way to push the industry to stop ignoring normal people and stop treating them like they were stupid. That was it. That was my idea, and it worked. And that, I can't say yeah, it better. I, mean, than that. I cannot say it. No, that's that. that's absolutely perfect because he sort of he basically whether you could argue you know he helped certainly helped usher that era in, but he also just he foresaw the fact that it would move from you know sort of the enthusiasts and 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 geeky people just being really into technology and and you know reading things like PC world and things like that to actually going into a mainstream thing and like i mean it is you know one of the most mainstream things right now is technology right like there's every single person in the world in some capacity uses some sort of technology uh and would could you imagine sort of if you know, if the PC worlds uh, were still sort of the the norm and sort of writing about that, it, it would seem insane right now, right. Um, because no one would have sort of a guide to to figure out how to use any of this stuff. Yeah, and the timing is just amazing that he did it and he made this decision in 1991. Because, in my opinion, what made computers mainstream, arguably twofold, but I think it's singlefold. I think Windows 95 obviously had some part of it where where the mass market, lower cost PCs jumped from having a really janky operating system like Windows 3.1 to having something that looked pretty nice and was a little, certainly a lot better organized. Um, but the bigger thing is just the internet itself. 
which is that and and you know people who love computers i certainly didn't foresee it i you know i was of the opinion as as somebody a kid who grew up loving computers i couldn't understand why everybody else didn't love computers and want to spend as many hours a day as they possibly could on computers but for normal people what made computers something that they didn't care about to something they cared about deeply was that they got turned into communication devices they, it's communication. Everything, it, you know, it, humans are, are creatures as we're born to want to communicate with each other. And the technologies that allow us to do so uh, are the ones that rock it off. I mean, you could even talk about the automobile from the Henry Ford era a century ago as ultimately as a communications device, you know, that yes, you could use it to bring things from one place to another faster than you could. But the fact that you could go visit people who you otherwise couldn't visit because you wouldn't have time to get there is a huge part of it, right? And computers, yep. before they were communication devices, or in like the dial-up modem era when you had to dial in and telnet into a bulletin board and use you know cryptic command line things and nobody would understand it. Like Geeks got it early. We spent time on bulletin boards communicating with each other. But when simple, to easy-to-understand communication technology became available on the internet, it, that's when it exploded. But Walt had his column from 1991, five, five years before that. And so he was already established as this voice of authority when the explosion already happened. Yeah. And, and I mean, the most obvious thing in the world is that the, the iPhone was the ultimate extrapolation of that, right? Right. Because then you had the, not only was it a physical communication device, uh, it blended everything together and you had it with you all the time. Um, right. Um, one thing that I was curious to your, your take about this topic on with, uh, you know, with, with Walt moving on was, uh, who do you think takes up the mantle then as sort of the, I guess that go to either technology columnist or reviewer, you know, we know the names who are sort of at the, at the bigger places, uh, you know, Farhad Manju, uh, at the New York times, um, uh, Wall Street Journal is still doing uh, the the combo, right? Of um, right with Joanna and um, with Joanna, right? And uh, the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but so what? And then David Pogue, I you know, is still at Yahoo, I guess, or is he not? I, I don't even know. Like, what's going to happen? Is he going to be at? I, uh, I think so, but I feel like I don't know because Yahoo's future is so uncertain. It. Right, is he going to be at Ethos or whatever the hell the company is going to be called? Um, so, uh, oh, Jeffrey Fowler. Yes, so, Jeffrey Fowler. Sorry, Jeffrey. Sorry, Jeffrey. Uh, <laughs> but so, like, so, what, how do you think that that plays out? Or is it not one of the giant, you know, sort of old school um, publications? Is it some some other? Is it so? Mark Gurman, you know, was announced this morning that uh, Bloomberg's launching a like a gadget show with uh, with Gurman. Oh, I didn't um, see that. Yeah, uh, it was on like I saw Axios. So Axios, you know the new uh, the new newsletter thing from Mike yeah. Allen and, and that group. Um, yeah, they broke the story about. Uh, it looks like it's going. I don't know exactly what it's going to be called. Hold on, I ha- actually have the link here, so I, I can pull it, it up. Right. But yeah, I was just talking about Axios because Ina Fried is took over yep. and is running the technology beat for them, and she was at the Apple Shindig last week, and I was talking to her about it. Uh, it's an interesting format, and I said to her, I said, you know, I'm not just saying this because you're here, but I have to say that, it, especially politics-wise, you know, I'm I'm more keenly attuned ever <laughs> ever since November, uh, and in the last few months, it's surprising how many of the links that have bubbled up to the surface politically have been Axios sites. Like, it, it didn't take very yeah. long after Axios launched 
before I, I noticed it. And I was like, how long has this been around? Because all of a sudden this is in my, uh, I'm, it's popping up every day. And then I checked and I was like, oh, it's only like two weeks old. Uh, yep. It's not like I missed oh, yeah, it. Yeah. It's like right from the get-go though. Axios They've been, has, has, they're doing great. Yeah. Um, and not, not to do too much of an aside on the aside, but um, yeah. So, you know, in my world, in my current world in VC, obviously everyone was reading Dan Primack uh, when he was at Fortune, his newsletter, and he moved over to Axios uh, sort of around the time of their launch. And then they have the Mike Allen guy who famously sort of wrote the, uh, you know, the Politico uh, newsletter for a long time. And it's insane because he literally writes it every single day uh, and just fills it with a ton of content every single day and seems to get legitimate inside the White House scoops, uh, and obviously Primac gets his scoops, Ina will get hers, and it's just like on down the line. Uh, they, have a, they have a pretty killer product and team. Yeah, yeah, they really, it's, they did a very keen job of focusing on uh, just getting great talent. Just, you know, they have a great format, and I like, you know, it's a good, it, it looks good. There's not, I don't see any clutter on screen that is annoying me. <laughs> it's, they've got this focus on writing really short articles that just get to the point which I think goes over really well. Like uh, there's no padding in the articles, uh, but they've got great talent on all these beats, which is a, to me, a great combination. It's a good format with a good focus. It's user friendly and they've assembled a really good team of talented people with, with deep sources. So anyway, and they do a great and just they do a great job with brevity too. Like yeah. they don't just they don't drag on. Right, that's what I'm saying. Long there's so much things. on the web that drags on because it's like they want now. It's like I feel like in the old days the, the problem like eight nine years ago was that the the sites because they were counting pages they would break up right. they would break up articles. <laughs> you know, click here for next page, next page. Um, but now I feel like articles are padded for the sake of being able to algorithmically interrupt between paragraphs to insert either ads or promotions for other thing on the site. And so I noticed mostly reading on the phone is it, it, there was this, Oh my God, I forget who it was. I don't even want to mention it because I don't want to give him any attention, but there was an article I was reading last night where they had three interruptions in the same article to promote a, a a new podcast that they were launching for the same podcast three times in the article between paragraphs and on the phone, it's a huge, it's a huge interruption between like where your eyes find the next paragraph. Right. Anyway, Axios does a good job on that. Uh, so German's thing is called Gadgets with German. Huh. That's a great Bloomberg, idea. Bloomberg show. So it's going to be a digital video series um, that they're going to launch across all the Bloomberg stuff, including the terminal, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, but then they're going to package it together and eventually sort of put it on Bloomberg television as well. Yeah. I know he's been very um, interesting. I know that's, uh, I, you know, I can't say I'm close friends with him, but I certainly am friendly with him. He's been on the show and, I, and whenever, you know, I like, and now that it, now that he's, you know, uh, really gone pro, he's, he's getting invited to Apple events. And I always try to make, make a point of saying hi. I know from talking to him that, um, a big reason he went to Bloomberg instead of anywhere else was the promise of, of video and TV stuff. You know, he's, right, he's super right. interested in that. Uh, so I'm not surprised at all that he's getting his own thing. But so, you know, amongst those people or someone else, like, is there someone who takes up that mantle or are we just in an era now where it's so, it's such the norm that there's going to be sort of the, you know, five to 10 go-tos yeah, for sort of I everything? Don't, I don't think there's anybody who takes the mantle from Mossberg. I really don't. And, and I, I just don't, I just don't see how it happens because I don't see, it's not like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal uh, aren't still important, but they're 
differently important now where I don't feel like they have singular voice. Maybe like on the New York Times op-ed page, you know, like a Paul Krugman and a Maureen Dowd still have that influence. But uh, I don't know. In technology, I just don't see it. I, I just, I, I think the fact that Walt was there so early and was so established that it combined with the incredible power of the Wall Street Journal even today, I mean, Wall Street Journal is still super popular, but the fact that he was doing it at the Journal, I, I just don't see how anybody's going to take that position. It's almost like, you know, Michael Jordan retires, who takes over as Michael Jordan? Like, maybe there will yeah. be a LeBron who comes along, but I, I think whoever that is isn't here yet. Yeah, and it's going to have to be sort of a different thing, maybe even a different format, right. you know? Um, and, you know, maybe this, this German thing becomes interesting. I do think, like... Uh, you know some of the, some of the other other folks uh, who have great history, like Stephen Levy, is a good good friend of mine. Obviously, he's still getting you know some amazing stories uh, for for his back channel stuff, which is underwired now. Right. Um, and you know, there's so there's going to be sort of um, there's still the the group of folks who have so much uh, prestige around them, and the bigger companies are still comfortable sort of uh, you know talking to them versus uh, you know just some some random person like you said. Like sort of when when Mark was at uh, when Mark Gurman was at a nine to five Mac, he didn't get invited to any of the nope. Apple things, right? Even though he's breaking every single story. Right. Um, well, it was already too late to come to the events, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Like what he was right. doing that was that was that was adding adding to uh, the overall quantity of the information in the world it had nothing to do with what was at the events. It was you know five months before the events, <laughs> right? Uh, I I feel like the closest would be, and I wonder. I think he did the right thing because I think part of being prescient with Walt was that uh, I think he was I think he was smart to go to create the All Things D brand while at the Wall Street Journal and and it, the again the Columbia Journalism Review mentions that they did that he and Kara Swisher did that when the consensus among print journalists was still to treat the web as an ugly stepchild right, right. that you're writing primarily for print. And then there's some B team that takes the print stuff after it after it's gone through the print process, and I don't know, put it on the web thing or whatever. You know, treat it as an ugly stepchild. Um, I mean, here in Philadelphia, I don't want to go on a super long aside, but the, at Philadelphia, the two newspapers are the Inquirer and the Daily News, and they made a decision in the late '90s that rather than focus on having like Inquirer.com and PhillyDailyNews.com or whatever you want to call the domains, be a quality things they made like a joint thing called philly.com and they had content from both newspapers but they just sort of, it was never really clear which articles were from which paper even though they independently as print operations they were completely separate and rivals mm -hmm. completely separate rivals even though they were under the same parent obligation our, our organization but the philly.com and it was an ugly website it was slow to load they they always they were at the forefront of using paywalls <laughs> <laughs> and and it almost bankrupted the company. It did bankrupt the company. The company is you know they they ended up having to sell their their magnificent headquarters and and move into you know janky office space and it it you know not treating the web seriously really almost ran them into the ground. I would say Walt was at the opposite. Where Walt was you know with all things D they they were like oh, we'll make you know we'll write for the web first. Yep, and we'll make web only and content. 
that plus uh, the conference business. Right. I mean, right. you know, they which came they first. were ahead they of did, the curve on right. that. That was yeah. 2003, and I think they started the All Things D website in 2007. I also yep. think that, you know, leaving, leaving the journal for the last, you know, what, five, six years of his career to start Recode, which they then merged with, you know, Vox and, and The Verge, et cetera. Uh, was probably the right thing to do. I really do think so. And I think it was had an eye on the future. Um, but I wonder how much it lessened his influence. Like, yeah, like I think for, really... I think for Kara and, and what she does best with breaking scoops, it's fine. I think, in fact, it's, I don't think, I think it was all win. And the fact that she's got equity in the thing and the scoops go out to everybody who cares about scoops when they come out. But for Mossberg's thing of being a sort of a uh, uh, spokesperson for the everyman right. as a product reviewer, I do wonder whether it, his, his voice was lessened by leaving the journal. Right. And I mean, that's, that's the hard, the hard, um, you know, sort of gap to close because the everyman may, may not read the Wall Street Journal, you know, only, but like they know of the Wall Street Journal. The Everman knows the Wall Street Journal. They'll know uh, Walt Mossberg at the Wall Street Journal. And uh, certainly he had a big enough name for when he leaves the Wall Street Journal to take some of that audience with him, but it will never be the full audience of a, you know, a nationwide distributed paper. Um, and so, right. I, I, it was almost like was Recode more of a, you know, sort of back to the tech enthusiast crowd right. versus the everyman crowd. Right. right. Like Walt's writing never didn't change. Like, right. you know, I don't think that you could Pepsi challenge the difference between Walt's columns uh, under the Recode or Verge banner and his, Verge, you know, columns under the journal banner. He had the same style and the same approach and the same attitude. Uh, if you just look at the words, but I think it reached fewer people. I think it was almost like a magnifier where he built the Walt Mossberg brand, where if you put a quote up in a keynote and it just had a, a quote from Walt Mossberg, that says a lot right there. But Walt right. Mossberg, comma, the Wall Street Journal, is like a, it's like a multiplier because now you've got both the power of the Wall Street Journal brand combined, you know, multiplied by the power of Walt's personal brand. Uh, yeah, and, and so, I mean, that speaks to why it was probably the smart move to then do the sort of the Vox uh, sale and, and merge basically, you know, with the Verge, because it is, while, you know, we can argue about whether it's been uh, successful yet in doing so, it is trying to reach a more mainstream audience rather than, um, you know, what I think what Recode was doing itself, which was much more targeted. Right. And, I you know, obviously, I'm a, I'm a surprise, surprise, I'm a big proponent of writers and independent journalists going off on their own and building their own brands. Um, but I'm also keenly aware of the brand equity of things like the Journal and the New York Times. I, I feel like Pogue is in the same boat, where career-wise, yep. it might have been exactly the right thing. I'm not criticizing him in the least. It might have been exactly the right thing to go to Yahoo, and and you know it might be great for his career and his family and his personal finances. Um but I can't help but think that if Pogue were still at the New York Times, he might be in that position to sort of take over as the de facto. Like David Pogue at the New York Times is a much more powerful voice and brand than David Pogue at, at Yahoo Tech or whatever the umbrella is. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. I know it's not a direct analogy, and it's in some ways probably unfair, but it's like, you know, it reminds me of um, sort of like the Siskel and Ebert thing, right? Um when they were at sort of the the pinnacle of doing film reviews and and of course the getting the television show and everything uh doing that and then 
you, you know, both unfortunately passed away. Um, and like, who then takes up that mantle? And they're really, you know, there, there's some people like A.O. Scott at the New York Times, yeah. who, who I think is great. And, and there's a handful of other people, but no one has, a, has that same influence. That's a perfect example, that I, I think, because there is no, there's no, no more Siskel and Ebert. And even after Gene Siskel died, I think Ebert, Ebert was enough of a voice where he was still... He, yes, he was still up there. Right. Um, but after after he died, uh, uh, there, nobody really took that. I can't think of who, who I would think. You know, I personally do like A.O. Scott. I personally, uh, I love to hate read. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Anthony Lane and the New Yorker. Oh right. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I read those too. Yep. I, <laughs> I get to the end of every issue of the New Yorker. And I, I either if I've seen, I don't read them unless I've seen the movie. But I, I, sometimes I keep old same. ones and I yep. bookmark them. And then when I do see the movie, I go back and read. I do the An- same exact. I go thing. back yep. and read yep. Anthony Lane's review, and then I rip it up. And I do the exact same thing for the same reason. Oh, I rip it up, and I want to, I want to just throw <laughs> these ripped up reviews in his face and say, "You joyless." <laughs> yep. Don't you realize that sometimes a movie is just meant to be fun? <laughs> but he's very good at writing those reviews, so I still read them. Uh, yep. But I can't say that like I, anybody is like that, like Ebert. I would say that yeah, Walt is sort of the Ebert and Siskel combined, maybe. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, good luck to him. Um, it's going to be weird. It's going to be weird not seeing him around. I tell you that. Yeah, I don't. Are you going to? I'll be at the the code conference for. I guess that's where he's saying the the uh, the actual goodbye. So that'll be an interesting. I've um, never gone. I should so. see if I can if I can wrangle in it. You, you should. It is, uh, you know, not to not to promote, right. not to be a promotion uh, here, but it is a very good conference. They do a very good job with it. I think the reason I never have even thought about seeing if I could go is that it seems so close to WWDC, and I'm sort yeah. of a homebody, and I don't want to go away two times in short succession. Yeah, and it's in Southern California, not not up here. So right. Well, I don't really care. It's just it's the, all that matters to me is that I'm a gazillion thousand miles away from home. But can't be away from that U-Haul desk uh, of yours. <laughs> uh, so you wanted, do you want to go back to your iPad well, point? No, let me finish that. I have, remember what I have one more sponsor to thank, and then I'll go okay. back to my iPad point, which is really okay. perfect. And it's our good friends. One of our best sponsors, Fracture. Fracture is a photo decor company. Here's what they do. You send them your personal photos. You pick a size, and they have all sorts of sizes to pick from. And then they print your photos directly on glass. You've probably heard about them before. You've probably heard me talk about them. They've been a longtime sponsor. I cannot emphasize what a great gift this item is. Now, as we record, it's the middle of April. Mother's Day is coming up. I don't know if there's time left. Maybe as you hear me listen to the words that are coming out of my mouth, you can hurry up and order some fractures for Mother's Day. Uh... If not, order them for Father's Day. These are the these are the greatest gifts of all time that I've I've given them out to members on both sides of our family, and every single time, even to people who've we've given them to before. It's it's it's. It, do you ever give a gift and and then you're like, wow, and it was great. It was like well received, and you're like, wow, I wish I could give them the same gift again next year. Guess what? With Fracture, you can. You can just pick new photos of kids who are growing up or trips that you've been on or anything that's happened in the last year, it's a great gift. And you can give it to them again and again and again. And it goes over well each time. And they don't think, they, the reaction is never, oh, one of these again. The reaction is always, oh my God, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, great photos printed directly on class. They do it right down in Gainesville, Florida. They're made in the USA. 
And if you've never seen one in person, I just can't say how cool it is to have an edge-to-edge photo, no bezel. It just goes right from one edge to another, and it comes with all the stuff you need to mount it on a wall. Uh, and it just looks so striking to have a f- f- really high-quality photo that looks like it's printed directly on glass on the wall with no frame, no bezel, just edge-to-edge glass that is pure photo. It's a great, great gift. It's a great product for your own home if you've got walls to fill and decorate. Uh, where do you go? Go to fracture.com slash podcast. Now that sounds like a fill in URL that I'm botching. Like it's supposed to be my own code, but it's not. It's just fracture.com slash podcast. All they do is keep track of all the people who come from any podcast. And at the end, when you buy something, they will ask you a one question survey, which is where did you hear a fracture from? That's where you can say the talk show or daring fireball or whatever you want to say. And they'll know you came from here. So my thanks to that. Go ahead and buy them. Their greatest gift you'll ever have. Fractureme.com. Fractureme.com. Fracture. All right. Back to the iPad. Here's the thing I would like to see them do. My biggest request would be to have a multitasking mode similar to the one they have now where you arrange multiple apps in full, full height columns. But I would like to be able to make them, I don't know exactly, I, don't, I, have, I haven't envisioned or invented an interface to make this to figure out exactly how they do it. But I would like to have it be more arbitrary. So if you want to have three, you could have three. If you want to drag one from the middle to the left, you could somehow drag the, you know, put your finger in like the nav bar or something or do a long press on it and drag it over, rearrange them. Um, and I would like them to do away with, it bothers me somehow, and I can't quite put my finger on it, but it just feels like the whole thing, it still makes the whole feel, thing feel tacked on to me that the left one is always main and the right one is like the junior app. Right, right. And that doesn't feel right to me. It doesn't feel, it, it's like on the Mac, there's never, it's there's a frontmost window and then there's all other windows and they're all equal. And if you click on one, it becomes frontmost, and it's every bit as legit as the other ones. Like, so if I have three apps on my iPad in columns side by side, when I'm in the middle one, I yep. feel like it should be every bit the real, the main app as it would be if, if it were the left one. And secondarily, I would like them to figure out a way to more visually clarify which one is the is currently has the focus. Right. Right. Um. But so with that three, the notion of three, does that work ratio-wise for sort of the, um, you know, how, how big the... Yeah, because I think that if you do the size classes right, it could be, it, your apps should rearrange themselves, you know, should use using auto layout, et cetera, to any arbitrary mm-hmm. width. You shouldn't be worried about exact, whether it's exactly, you know, 767 pixels, or I got that wrong, but, you know. That you shouldn't yeah. be worried yeah. about hitting this short list of exact pixel widths. You should be more like a Mac app. You should be able to rearrange to any arbitrary width. I'm not saying that the that the iPad should let you drag the little divider and change it from 750 pixels to 748 pixels. I feel like the fact that the iPad isn't so fussy and has these set sizes that it that that the apps clip to is actually nice. Yeah. Right, like it's it's always bothered me a little that you that when you resize a Mac app window, that it's never really perfect. It's always just where you know whichever wherever you left off the mouse. 
Right. So you want you want a combination of those things, like it just it being strict in sort of uh, formatting, but just being more options for what you right. how you can format that. Screen. Right. And I don't want infinite options. I feel like you know, like a nine point seven inch iPad, maybe the maximum is three. Maybe on the twelve point right. nine, the maximum's four. Uh, you know, I, I trust Apple to work that out. But if I want to go. 50-50, and I want to have two that are exactly 50-50, or if I want to go like two-thirds, one-third, I could do that very easily. And if I want to go one-third, one-third, one-third for three, mm-hmm. I could do that easily. Uh, and do you, do you think now, I assume the iPad, certainly the iPad Pro's at the point where it could run three apps simultaneously without an issue? Oh, I think so, without question. And especially with the way that... Yeah, I think so. I think it has enough RAM to do that. Um, yeah, I would love to see something like that. I think you know one of the biggest drawbacks. It's not huge, but it, one that I have because I use the iPad a ton um, is just they're still a little cutesy with sort of switching between the apps. You know, they still have sort of these uh, the animations that go on to sort of you know flip it around and, and whatnot, and it just makes it a little bit longer than it needs to be, right? Yeah. Um, and so if if you're really into like using two apps. Um, yeah, and I know you could do the side-by-side things, and I do that for, for certain apps. It makes sense to do that for, but I would even just like it, just make it as fast as possible to switch between two. Yeah, I, they they tweaked that in iOS 10.3. Yeah, I think it's a little bit faster, Yeah, right? they shortened some of the animation times. Um, yeah, like I'm using it right now. Yeah, I mean, it is faster, because it slides right in now, but they still, you know, they're still cute, a little cutesy with the animations. Yeah, and the longer you use a computer, like, the more that you use an iPad as like your main writing computer, it the the more those animations grate on you because you right. the more sensitive you are to knowing that you're waiting for the animation and not really waiting for the computer. Totally. And I feel like in the classic days, like in the original Mac, like eighty four, eighty five, eighty six, when the first Macs first came out, and and you know the in hindsight they were desperately, desperately slow and desperately starved for every resource you could imagine disk space and RAM and video RAM and everything. Um, when you double-clicked something and you got those zoom rectangles that showed it coming up, part of it right. was to help you understand, okay, you've opened this folder and it's opening into a window and the animation would help you do that. But the other reason yep. the animations were there was to give you something to look at while you were waiting for the computer to actually do it because <laughs> it wasn't going to happen instantaneously anyway. It was sort of solving two birds with one stone, which was it was giving you this visual clue of telling you what was happening. Like, oh, this folder is opened into a window now. And when I close the window, it closes into the icon from which it opened. I see the folder is a window and the window is a folder. And the folder, if I go back to that window, has a different visual state when the window, its corresponding window is open. Right. Um, but the animations never felt like they were slowing you down because you were waiting for the computer anyway. And as the computers got faster, I feel like those visual clues, like I still like in some ways, like on the iPad or, or iPhone, when you tap an icon and the app animates as it opens up, I still feel like it's, I don't feel like it should, I don't feel like the screen should flash instantly, but I feel like that animation should be very fast. Right. Um, and, and just playing around with it now, like, so I think Apple did a good job sort of, if you use command tab, which you can use if you have the keyboard, you know, hooked up yep. to the, um, 
to the iPad. It's it's actually very fast. It's pretty good. Um, but if you just do the double click of the home button, it's still sort of like a slowish zoom out, and then you click on the one you want, and then it's a slowish zoom in. And then uh, the worst of all, maybe, and I don't know. I, I assume very few people actually use this, but you know, you can do the four finger sort of swipe thing. Yep. And go from sort of app to app that way. And it's just like unnecessarily slow. Um, So, yeah, I almost never use that as a result of that. But that's currently, I guess, the state of the art. Um, The only other thing I was going to add to the iPad discussion since we were talking about sort of newer ones. So the Pro that I'm using now still feels super fast. The newer 9.7 Pro, super fast. But I will say the iPad Mini is a little slow these days. Um, Yeah. I, I still use it for, um, you know, for certain times reading, uh, take it out with me since it's nice and small, but that's pretty slow. And I know that there was some debate uh, back and forth whether or not they would actually just sort of get rid of that product. Um, and I hope they don't. But anyway, I wonder because it does stick out now because it's actually at an entry level. It's more expensive than the, nine, the <laughs> right, new 9.7 the, the new one. Level. Yeah, uh, yep. it does have more uh, storage. So it's not completely inexplicable why it's more expensive, but it does seem weird because up until this most recent introduction of the quote new 9.7 inch iPad, there was a correlation in cost between, okay, the small one is the cheapest, the midsize one is mid-priced and the new big one is the most expensive. And now all of a sudden there's a weird situation where if you're budget conscious, you're going to get the 9.7 inch, not the, the, you know, you're seemingly getting more, more of a device than you are you know, for three twenty nine than you would at three ninety nine for the mini. And it's also it's been over two years, right, since it's been updated at this point. Um Yeah. I don't know so, if it's done though. I don't know. I mean it's it's hard to say. I don't know. I guess it really it comes down to how many people are buying it. I mean it and Apple Apple knows that and isn't going to tell us. But I wouldn't be surprised right. either way. I wouldn't be surprised if it gets a very quiet update, more or less like with the specs of the quote new nine point seven inch iPad just in a smaller size and it just right. sits there at a I mean, you know, I don't know who knows if they could lower the price, but you know, uh, maybe. And I wouldn't be surprised if it just never gets updated and two years from now, it just goes away that the, the, that it sort of got killed by the plus size iPhones. Right. And yeah, especially if, um, you know, when, the, if, and when this new, uh, it's top of the line iPhone comes out, if that even makes it even more of sort of a, a glaring, um, discrepancy between them yeah and i wonder i I can't help but think that the the pro uses like i don't think there's ever going to be an ipad mini pro i just don't i don't think they're going to make a keyboard that small i think it would be it would really take child (laughs) i did get one of those keyboards that was like the logitech one that you could use with it it was so ridiculously small uh not very useful uh it is good though as a like a reader, you know, like it because yeah. it is roughly oh, Kindle thing. size, yeah. and so if you really do just read, but maybe their thinking is that for the people who do use it, they mostly just read, and it doesn't matter if it's long in the tooth and a little slow at this point. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I can't see them adding a smart connector and having a keyboard for it. Um, yeah, they, it just it. It's too small of a screen size to actually make an ergonomic keyboard, and you, all you have to do is play with the Logitech one for five seconds to know that. Yeah. Uh, I talked about this before. I still think it's interesting that the uh, Apple, when they when they had me, they they had a briefing for the new iPad and the Clips app and stuff, and I went up to New York and and saw it. Um, they they don't have a special keyboard for the new nine point seven inch iPad, but in collaboration with Logitech, 
they're supporting this Logitech case slash keyboard, <laughs> which is sort of, uh, it's very thick. It's like rugged, but it's, you know, you can totally see, if you think about it in the context of like a K-12 school, you think, oh yeah, I can see why they would love that because it looks like something mm-hmm. that would easily survive like a drop. Um, but one of the reasons it's important is that you put it into this case, you put the iPad in this case that's totally surrounded and it has a lightning port inside and I don't know if it has a battery or not, but that means that it's not a Bluetooth connection to the keyboard. It's a hardware connection to the keyboard through lightning. Hmm. And that's essential for K-12 because um, all of the standardized tests that take place on a computer, it's mandated that there's no wireless connectivity. connectivity uh, yes. on the, and you can understand, yeah. you know, it's, I, I see, right. I get it. it no wireless whatsoever. It's like complete airplane mode. Otherwise, the software does, you know detects that you're not in airplane mode and and won't run. Um, and I can totally I see I feel, why Apple. I feel like it. if a, if a kid can cheat via Bluetooth, that would be pretty impressive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I understand. <laughs> I mentioned this the other week on the show with Dan Fromer. He said that he and his friends used to. I forget if he said Palm Pilots. I forget what they had. But when he was in high school, they had something, and they were IRing their cheats to each other. They're just oh, I wonder if they. I remember like you know, they remember like the TI calculate the Texas Instrument uh, sort of scientific calculators. We used to have all sorts of fun things on that. I think you could run Doom, like <laughs> an emulator to run Doom on it, and uh, some other fun stuff. Yeah, you're too young. You're 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 too young for me. I didn't have anything of that capability. But we had calculators <laughs> that had. They just had the um, the numeric display, but you could type letters in them too. But it was a yeah. one one row, and it had like memory functions. And so our cheat, our way of cheating was to put the briefest possible cheat notes in those memory functions, <laughs> and then yeah. you would bring them up. And instead of just being numbers, it would you know be some sort of like thirty two character. Oh yeah, that's how you you know that's how you do. It. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Children find a way. Yeah. No matter the technology. <laughs> Anything else that you want to talk about? Um. The only other thing, uh, and we can sort of briefly talk about it, just because I did think it was interesting. You you had sort of a, a shortest rant in linking to something, and it does relate directly maybe to some of the iPad stuff we were just talking about, is the app bundle size thing. Oh. Um, because there was also, like, you and I had a, not really back and forth, I responded to you, and they both got a ton of, uh, yours and mine both got a ton of likes, because I think this resonates with people. You were talking about, in that tweet, the Dropbox app. Like, why is it? 260 megabytes or whatever. And then in your linked post, you were talking about the... Someone um, wrote a breakdown of why the Facebook app is so big yeah. now, right? I So I noticed this because I was without Wi-Fi service for a week or so. Uh, and so I was living entirely off LTE. And I have... I upgraded our Verizon plan to quote-unquote unlimited. But I've re- I read the fine print when we did it, like our family plan. And unlimited is... <laughs> Not really unlimited. There's, I forget what point, but there's a point where they reserve the right where in your month, if you go over like 20 gigabytes or something, they reserve the right to throttle you, something like that. It, it's yeah. not really unlimited. And so right. uh, one of the things I did in the week or so I was without Wi-Fi is I didn't update any of my apps with the update all. I would just go through and look for ones that I either thought were essential or like small. And it's amazing how many apps. So more or less, I didn't update any app over 100 megabytes. And by the end of the week, I had like 26 app updates. It's amazing. And it's amazing how many of them are over 200 megabytes. 
I know. And I mean, that's without question, that's creeping up across all apps over time. It was it was sort of one app, maybe it was the Clips app or something like that. It was one of Apple's apps I noticed the other day. Um, you know, I think it was Clips maybe. Um, and it was like six megabytes. And I was like, oh my God, I don't even remember the last time I saw an app update that was that tiny. Um, because they're all now at least 50 and then many are over 100, some over 200, like you were talking about. And it's insane. And so I like that the thing you linked to, like sort of breaking down, looking, unpacking the, um, the you know, Facebook's bundle for that. And they just have so much cruft in there that's, that's obviously duplicate um, framework, duplicates. Duplicate yeah. copies of the same framework, duplicate copies of the same image assets. And, and even that, even if you got rid of all the duplicates, it do, still seems like it would be big, but it's crazy i know i know from somewhat i know one of the things is that it's these analytics packages that the apps are all right. using and that they come as binary blobs where you just they give you this framework to toss into your xcode project and the whole thing is in there and it's you know and then somebody else says from the seo team on your company is like well we want this analytics product too and then all of a sudden you got two of them and they add up to 100 megabytes and it's not it's yep. not even your app uh right app, um, apple, the other apple th- isn't innocent either because the iworks apps are humongous oh huge and microsoft those are some of the worst the iworks all the the productivity stuff uh, whenever I have Microsoft Word, one of them, and it was like it was like six hundred megabytes. Like what in an app update? What are they doing? I presume it's all templates and and the image I, assets it, to go with the templates. I can't imagine what else it would different be. Different languages, and I I don't even know. Um, one of the things I know, obviously, Facebook does. One of the reasons for the bloat is they're always including various A/B tests mm-hmm. in their app, and so they will trigger things based on country. Um, I think based on other things as well uh, to try to you know A/B test various functionality. Back in the TechCrunch days, you know, I used to to sort of uh, know where to look and and who to ask about sort of unpacking some of that because you could always find stuff. I think I found the iPad version of the Facebook app when it was still bundled in before there was an official iPad version because yeah. it was baked into the uh, you know the, the the standard iOS version um, and so it was right there and I'm sure they're they're always doing stuff like that I it I, I feel like it's getting out of control though and it, part of it yes. is that I noticed it with this I, I've noticed it before that but I noticed it with this week where I didn't have Wi-Fi but I've noticed it before and it just seems preposterous to me I mean like uh, I'm not saying I mean we you know we were finicky and fussy but Vesper I looked it was the the last version of Vesper which is still in the app store is 5.5 megabytes <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that's <laughs> and, impressive. And a huge chunk of that is that we embedded a custom font. It's If we had used a system font, it would have been even significantly smaller. Uh, there's no reason for it. And, it, it I, I, and it's really wasteful. And Facebook, after I mentioned that, somebody wrote to me, and I forgot to even mention this, but it's a good point, is Facebook updates their app all the time. So multiply yeah. the size of the update versus how frequently they have new versions, and it's yeah. I mean, they they famously say in their update notes, "We update the app every two weeks." Yeah. That's all they say in the update uh, notes, right? So they do it every two weeks. Uh, and the same with Messenger. Messenger's almost as big, I feel like, in that you know the Facebook Messenger product, yep. and then Facebook has several other apps that are all sort of roughly in the same uh, situation, and then. Uh, that an offshoot of all of that reminds me of uh, this was several weeks ago. F- Twitter actually added something in their settings to basically kill 
clear the cache. Um, and when I did that, I had like a gigabyte worth of information in there. Like what on earth? They were caching, I guess, images and, and GIFs or something from like years and years ago. It was a gigabyte worth of data. <laughs> Twitter, 140 characters. Right. So in a world where all but the newest devices were still sold in 16 gigabyte configurations, you could, you could have a, right. a gigabyte of old tweets stored there. <laughs> I don't know, I, but I feel like it's it's getting out of control. And I know that in the early years of the App Store, it was a pretty big deal. I think the limit was 100, where you could right. – it was like 100 Over megabytes was the limit where cell. you had to be on Wi-Fi, and otherwise you could be on right. cellular. And it was a big deal for developers to stay under 100 because they wanted users to be able to update as soon as they could. And if they were on cellular right. for an extended stri- stretch, they wanted them to get the updates. But it seems like they've just – blown past that uh but it's a serious it adds up to serious bandwidth so like i i checked like um i think i pay fifty dollars a month for an at&t cellular service on my ipad uh and i'm i'm thinking about giving this up when i next get an ipad but my strategy when i bought it's an ipad mini and i got it i don't know two or three years ago probably like three years ago but that's my personal ipad um, and my strategy was I'm going to have Verizon service on our, on all, the whole family's iPhones and I'm going to get AT&T on my iPad so that if I'm ever somewhere where Verizon, you know, like on a vacation or something and there's no good yep. Verizon service, I'll have AT&T service. And I pay 50, 50 bucks for seven gigabytes a month. And I think, I think Amy pays like 30 bucks for four gigabytes or five. I don't know, but it's very single digit gigabytes of bandwidth a month. And if you've only got four gigabytes of bandwidth in a month and app updates are 200 megabytes each, <laughs> like right. five app updates use up one, a quarter of your bandwidth. You could easily chew through the four gigabytes. And I don't feel like people know that. I think people realize that, Hey, if I'm going to stream video that's going to chew up my bandwidth. Like if I'm going to watch right. YouTube for an hour or two, I, that's obviously I'm using on cellular. I'm using my bandwidth. If I watch a major league baseball game in the MLB app, I know that I'm using a you know significant chunk of my bandwidth. Like updating my apps doesn't feel like that should be squandering a huge percentage of my monthly bandwidth, but it is because people have you know a lot of people have a, a pretty low single digit number of gigabytes a month of bandwidth to use. Yeah, I mean, I had the exact same situation when I was last moving. Uh, same thing, we were using sort of a tethered device. I think it was a MiFi unit that I had just gotten and hooked up to our uh, AT&T account. And not even explicitly, but I just either forgot or I have too many devices to even remember every single one of them. But I would just leave it on. If I left it on at night, we would always have to turn it off because yeah. if I left it on, <laughs> they would auto-update because, you know, it considers it to be Wi-Fi because right. I'm connected to a MiFi right. unit, right? And so it would auto-update. And then I'd look at the bill and we would blow past yeah. our whatever like 20 gigs in like four days there's almost all from app updates we weren't watching video right. it was like it was crazy mark marco arman uh, has a funny story about that from years ago he was at wwdc and he was tethering you know in the era of relatively low gigabytes per month and he was tethering and he wanted to yeah you know, had it set up so he could publish a podcast that they recorded and he left <laughs> He left his. He went to bed and he left his MacBook open and it downloaded and uh, iTunes downloaded a new episode of Mad Men in HD and it, it, it cost him like seventy dollars. He got like a single episode of a show he was subscribed to and it was like a seventy dollar overage fee or something. Uh, that's funny because Mac doesn't know that anyway. 
Uh, no, that's a good topic. I don't know what's going on, but I feel like Apple's got to get on top of this because I don't feel like we're just crazy old men who are, right. you know, get off my lawn with your big ass apps. There's no reason for these apps to be so big. There's absolutely no reason for it. It reminds me, well, two things it reminds me of. Because um, one, it reminds me of back when, you know, they tried to launch uh, magazines on the iPad, right? And like they were massive oh, yeah. because they were just pictures of. Of pages, right. right? They would like scan in a picture of uh, of Wired magazine, <laughs> and that would be the app. And so they were each each uh, uh, individual article uh, episode, each individual uh, issue was like seven hundred to eight hundred megabytes, and it was just so ridiculous and so tedious to download. They seem to have streamlined that a little bit. Right. Obviously, there's less of an emphasis on it these days, um, but I, I noticed they just down they're downloading faster. So I assume that they're smaller. Um, the one other thing is. This actually came out a couple weeks ago, I think. Um, so Twitter now, Twitter. One of the things Twitter launched recently was Twitter Lite, L I T E. It's like the light version of their service because of this problem, right? Like in in developing uh, uh, countries, they can't possibly download you know 250 megabyte apps or have your uh, Twitter app store a gigabyte worth of data. Um, and so they ended up launching, it's just on the web, um, and it's the same thing Facebook did back in the day. This was several years ago. They launched a Facebook Lite. And, like, when they launched these things, like, uh, you know, everyone seems to praise them for it because it's like, wow, it's so great. It's so fast. I remember I wanted, I would try to use Facebook Lite as my main thing, even though it was meant for sort of third world countries. Um, so they're all, like, they have these funny ways around it because they know that that situation is just completely untenable, uh, certainly out side of the United States. And so they have like whole teams now devoted to launching light versions of their product. It's, I don't know what the solution is, but something's got to be done because it's, it's getting out of hand and it's only getting worse. Um, I just can't help but feel too that when I read that technical analysis of the Facebook app bundle and how many duplicate resources and frameworks they have, like the, the, the project, the Xcode project to build it must be like a total like mess of spaghetti logic yeah yeah there's just no way that you get in that situation there's no good there's no good explanation behind that well and the problem also i assume you know unlike sort of like like you with vesper where you know you have a very small team working on it you know facebook presumably has hundreds if not more people working on all of these things and so you could say like just you know streamline some of it but it's like whose job is that you need like an overseer of the code right i guess i I mean i guess i can see how it happened but it's still not a good explanation where if the people who are working on their uh snapchat clone (laughs) need they (laughs) need to depend to build it they need a copy of the 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 facebook uh you know framework the the the, everybody uses this framework with our core shared code but the other teams need the same thing but they can't depend on where that is and uh, that's all all of a sudden how you have three copies of the same framework because right team a needed it team b needed it and you know all of a sudden, I also really liked his uh, his note about like you know finding the strings that were like you will be fired if you include <laughs> if you turn this on right or if you use this API. <laughs> that was funny too. Um, and you know my joke back to you about the Dropbox right. one was like, well, yeah, of course, because they're including <laughs> the Dropbox stories into it. Um, but the I think someone else had an even funnier one. I thought, which is like for the Facebook ones, where it's like, well, yeah, of course they're that big. I mean, they had to shove all of Snapchat into the app. So <laughs> what else are you gonna do? <laughs> Uh, uh, I'm looking here. Anything? uh, Do you want to talk about clips a little bit, or or or? 
Yeah, we can. I don't. I don't have. To, I've played with it a little bit. Um, I found it confusing when I was first using it, but I only have played with it for a few minutes. It sounds like you know you you did the sit down, sort of a walkthrough with Apple about it. Um, what's from from your view? What's their What's their mentality? I know you said something like, you know, um, obviously they didn't launch a social network. Right. It's just meant for other networks, right? But um, why why do it? Is it a reason to buy the iPhone? Like, what's what's the rationale? I think the rationale is that they see these things as – I don't think we collectively have a name for it yet, but that it's a new medium. It's not quite a video. It's not quite an animated GIF. It's – sort of uh but it's it's got all these ideas where you can use text to annotate you can include multiple clips so it's not just one shot of video you can include stills uh it's meant to be viewed on a phone and you can do it with minimal fuss and that it's right up their alley to make it's like the social networks are how they get distributed right instagram and snapchat and facebook of course but that the tools to actually make the best possible version of this is exactly in Apple's wheelhouse of the sort of things that they do well. And I still stand by, I'm very proud of it as a tweet length review that it's like iMovie and keynote had a baby and the baby got the best genes from both parents. Like I really (laughs) do believe that. Um, I have a couple of small complaints about it, but one thing that they do that's very smart, and I think it's why the the bundle size is so small is that all the, they have all these like titles and, um, certainly the music soundtracks, they're not included in the download. And so when you start using the app fresh, if you want to get these soundtracks, you have to download them. Oh, okay. That's good. Maybe that's what like Facebook and others well, should learn. I think from. it's a great idea. I think it's, it's so you can start using the app with a minimal download and just download. Right. And so if you are on cellular or a slow network, you can just download the ones you really want. My only beef about it is I do wish there was a download all button. Like in iTunes, you can do that. So like if you're using the iTunes music library, you can have a music album that's in the cloud. And if you just want one song, you can download it. But if you want to download the whole album, you can download the whole album without clicking 11 times to download. I feel like Eclipse should have that for the title styles and for the music soundtrack. Why do you think, though, that they launched it when they did? Why not you know, make it a feature of iOS 11? Why do it as a fully standalone thing? Uh, that's a good question. I guess because it's ready and they feel like, why not? That's my guess. And that, you know, maybe that they, you know, they see this as an exploding form, you know, these sort of Mm -hmm. stories based meme style mini videos. Um, you know, one of the other things too, that I think is central to it is that being silent is part of, you know, you can include sound. You can include including those music soundtracks, but the fact that a lot of people are going to listen to them in silence uh, right. is part of the idea, and it's part of why they spent so much effort on this annotated text that gets the text as you as you you know right. as you dictate it. Um, I feel like that they see this as this is my guess is that they see this art, art form as exploding, and that it makes sense to get it out sooner rather than later because iOS 11 isn't going to ship until September. If they're on schedule. So it's right. And so if they're ready Um, to go now in early April, and I think it is, I think the app is certainly, certainly in 1.0 shape. It's in very good 1.0 shape. I feel like they, they don't want to wait, you know, maybe, maybe do less as big monolithic OS updates and keep doing more as individual app updates. 
Do you buy anything into the notion of this being sort of a toe dip into augmented reality? Because obviously we see that we see both Microsoft, Google, and a handful of others sort of launch some of these things. Microsoft just launched one, I think called like Sprinkles the other day, which is, you know, effectively using some of their uh, machine learning technology to sort of alter images. Google just launched that thing where you can doodle and it will look up you know, try to match it to a picture. Um, so all of these guys are clearly doing that as both experimentation, but also to sort of train data, right? To to be better at that. Do you buy Apple trying to do that? A little, anything with a it little, for augmented reality? A little bit, because I feel like you have to call the face recognition as augmented reality, right? I mean, it, maybe it's not augmenting yep. it, but it certainly is. It's 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 reality aware. Is that a better way to say it? You know, where if yeah. you shoot a clip and it has three of your friends in it and the the facial recognition is able to identify them and the fact that when you go to share it, they're the first three people that suggest sharing it to, it's not quite augmented reality in the sense of, okay, here's goggles that show you the real world and overlay things. Right. But it is machine learning for sure. It is, and it is the device in your hand is making is aware of the real world. It is saying, I know right. that I'm shooting. That's a picture of your son. You know, I know that, um, uh, you know, it, I, I almost feel like augmented reality is, is a term that's not going to pan out. I feel like it's more, uh, just devices being reality aware. Yeah. And I think like, I, I don't disagree with that because I do think, you know, sort of everyone assumed augmented reality would be sort of like what the Magic Leap videos are, right? Where it's like you're looking out and you have glasses on or something and then a whale jumps out of the the street. Um, But what we're seeing is like the mainstream usage, at least right now, of course, of what you would call quote-unquote augmented reality is more along lines of Snapchat filters and Pokemon Go, right? Where they're just different. There's there's nuance to how they're they're not quite um not quite like that pokemon goes a little bit more like that but snapchat's more just what you were talking about sort of you know being able to to recognize a face and do manipulation of that and if you think about it with a little bit of battery you could like why why can't your iphone be as aware of where it is as as you are it, it, there's, I, I think it's. I don't think we're very far from this at all. And I mean this in the sense of beyond GPS. Like GPS is is certainly one aspect of knowing where it is. But like when I'm walking down Broad Street in Philadelphia, like if you had me blindfolded until the moment, and then you open my eyes, it's only going to take me an instant or two to realize, you know, where I am on Broad Street in Philadelphia because I'm very familiar with it. Well, if I have my phone in my hand, why can't the phone use the camera very briefly and just take a quick look, a quick quick peek, and instantly realize, oh, I know exactly where I am. I'm at, I'm at Broad and Spruce in Philadelphia. Because I, I recognize this instantly yeah. the way that a human can. And and Merlin Mann and I talked about this recently on the show, but it, and it, we can't go in-depth on these voice assistants, but like things like uh, the... Um, I mean, Alexa is very good in a lot of ways, but why can't devices like Alexa recognize every voice in the family? It seems to me like we're very, going to be very close to that because a human being certainly could. If we had a human being in our kitchen, the human being would know instantly whether it was me or my wife or my son who was asking for the weather 
And now it doesn't matter. Maybe if the question is what's the weather, like it doesn't matter who it is, but if it's what's on my agenda, they should certainly not. Oh yeah, just, we will. That will absolutely right. happen. And, I, I would say that happens in short order. Right. And, you, and um, you start thinking about these things. And I, I think about like, well, how would you program something? How would you think about making a computer that does this? And you think about what our ears can do. And it's like when you're familiar with your with like your house or whatever, it's not just that you know who's talking to you, but you can basically tell where they're talking to you from. Like if you're yeah. if somebody's upstairs from you and they're yelling, MG, you know, can you blah, blah, blah. You know that, that they're upstairs. You can hear it. Your ears pick up that location. And like, why can't yep. these devices know that? Like, right, context awareness. Right, um, and yeah, I mean, but look at like Apple still does the thing, right? Where you have to sort of train, quote unquote, Siri when you start, yeah. right? You have to say like, "Hey," Siri. and so it'll only uh, illuminate with your voice. That's still right, right? Yeah. Well, it's supposedly, but it's it's not. It's not very accurate, in my opinion, in terms of locking people out. Like, I, in fact, okay. I think my wife just used on my phone I, I i'm not sure if she pressed the button or not though and if that's the case it's sort of weird that they even make you do that if it's just not you know because obviously like um uh you don't sort of voice train um no. and, I, and i don't think the google one either right now um <laughs> i just triggered <laughs> we'll have to beep it uh yeah <laughs> it's so hard to talk about these things on a podcast you saw that thing that just like that news broke. I didn't read the full story about it, but I saw uh, that someone Burger King's trying to do a commercial that triggers the Google Home. Oh, really? I did not see yeah. that. Uh, and I think I saw that Google is already going to block that because that's a whole can of worms. Obviously, <laughs> that's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, I feel like there's a lot to go in that direction. I still feel like one of the main areas where Apple is – I think it's just that they just didn't have it ready. But the way that they don't share the facial recognition data between your different devices is a huge hole. And I think that they will. And I think that their whole explanation last year that it was about privacy was just right. – it wasn't that uh, – it wasn't like we believe so much in privacy that we're not going to share this between your devices. I think that the reading between the lines, the answer is we believe in privacy and we don't have a private way to share it between your devices yet. And so we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it in a way that we're not satisfied with the privacy until we have it ready. But I think it's inevitable that they will. Right. And they made a bunch – I can't remember the the exact um, name or wording Differential of, of privacy. the technology. Yeah. Differential well, privacy, right. that's different right, though yeah. than sharing personal information. Differential privacy is, is about – It's fully anonymized yes. – but right. like uh, real pri- private, you know, like they 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 do share stuff between their devices, like in the same way that you can get end to end encrypted iMessages on multiple devices. Mm-hmm. It's not like they don't believe in in non duplicating private information between your devices. It's just that they're for whatever reason the photo face ID stuff wasn't it wasn't technically ready. That's my belief. It's not that they're never not going to do it, but for something like clips, it would really yeah. help. And we'll see. I mean, my guess is that their stance, you know, just maybe doesn't fully change over time because, you know, they've obviously they've taken the the privacy stance like you mentioned, but like the implications of that were that they're going to try to do as much on the device as possible. And I think, you know, that's fine and, and good and we'll see what they can do with that. But I would imagine that if they really 
need to get in the game for all of these things that we're talking about in a big way, they are going to have to start doing a lot in the cloud. And so then, yeah, it becomes like a question of how they do it, whether it's a differential privacy um, or if they're, they come up with other new technologies to, so that they feel okay with the, the privacy sort of trade-offs. But there's always going to be trade-offs. Yeah. All right, we've gone on pretty long. Do you want to spend five minutes on Netflix and Amazon, or do you want to do you want to wrap it up? Um, the problem is, I think that that's just such a yeah. such a long. I say we I say uh, we save it for the next time you're on the show. Okay, let's see. Because I feel like I feel like like doing it quick wouldn't do it justice, and I feel yes. I've and both of them are so active in this regard that there's going to be new stuff to talk about soon. But anyway, I, I'm sure. with you that I feel like they're both super fascinating. Yes. Um, what's your favorite Netflix show? Um, we really liked, uh, the queen. I didn't see that. Uh, you should see it. It's good. It was the one that's the most expensive one. I think, I think they said it's more expensive than game of Thrones to make. Uh, yeah, because of the costumes and it's, you know, it's obviously a full period piece. Um, and yeah, so it's supposedly the most expensive, I don't know if it's the most expensive show ever, but it's, you know, ahead of game of Thrones. So it's gotta be up there. Um, and that was really well done. Um, on Amazon right now, we're watching The Man in the High Castle, which I like. It was a little slow to get into, really but I'm slow. starting to really like oh, it. Oh, I almost gave yeah. up on it. I almost gave up. Yeah, same, same. My yeah. favorite thing that either of them are doing is Netflix's incredible all-in focus on comedy specials. Um, yeah. The Dave Chappelle ones are two of the best comedy specials I've seen in memory. And they they released them both at the same time. They were both amazing. And it's... I like comedy specials in general, but my wife does too. And it's, so it's like this perfect sweet spot of, oh my God, every single time one of these comes out, we've got something we're both looking forward to watching together. And they mm-hmm. just keep coming out. It's Dave Chappelle and then Amy Schumer. And now I just saw that there's a Louis C.K. one. It's almost like they're coming yep. out with, with them faster than we can watch, which is amazing. And so I, I'm surprised that like... Because th- this is like what HBO used to do back in the day, yeah. right? HBO would have all the comedy specials, uh, I guess, in the 90s. And I'm sort of surprised because it is such a relatively you know, cheap versus you know doing a full production of a television show or something. Yeah, it's super like, cheap. Avenue to go down. They just give a right. ton of money to the comedian, you know, like $20 million. I think Chappelle got $20 million? I forget. Uh Something like that, but it's you know. I know that Will Seinfeld got. I think it's a hundred million for his show. You know, the co- comedians uh, getting coffee with comedians or whatever in cars. Well, is that, is that moving networks? Is that moving? Yes, it's moving over to Netflix, and so they had to, <laughs> yeah bid up the rights. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh man! Oh man! That's just brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant because I feel like he would be doing the same thing. <laughs> whether it was televised or not. So he's getting $100 million to... Oh, yeah. I mean, he says that. <laughs> right. He, I mean, because it was on, like, Crackle or right, whatever. Right. And, like, he was just like, yeah, he just had this crazy idea. And someone said, uh, we'll put up the cost. Okay, cool, yeah. great. Uh, it, it, but uh, here's the thing. And, again, it, we won't go too deep on it. But I remember as a kid growing up, it, all the great comedy specials were on HBO. And I didn't really think about it. But I assumed it was... I only thought about it from the perspective of... It, commercial interruptions would wreck it. You can't interrupt a, right. you know the whole point of a great stand-up routine is that it's it, it builds continuously and there's never a good point for a commercial break and b almost all of them have material that would be <laughs> inappropriate for major networks uh and so of course hbo is the natural home because they can put r-rated content up and they have no commercial breaks and so that's why it's on hbo what never occurred to me until netflix 
has suddenly gotten become the dominant force in stand-up comedy specials is that they're evergreen that they can show yeah. like the Dave Chappelle 2017 comedy special is something that people were going to watch five, six years from now, like six, seven years from now, some kid is going to all of a sudden discover Dave Chappelle and the Dave Chappelle comedy specials that are exclusive to Netflix. He's, you know, they're going to watch them back to back to back to back. Right. It's evergreen. Yeah, content. And, and it's right. Exactly. It's the perfect type of content for what Netflix and Amazon are doing. Um, because like in the HBO days, like we were talking about, there was no concept of on demand. Right. You had to watch it when it was right. on. Um, now, now we live in an on demand world and uh, you need, if you want to have some sort of differentiation of content, uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to beat. But that. I can see now how in hindsight, that was part of HBO's strategy back in the day is that HBO could show their Eddie Murphy comedy special a year later. They could just put it and they could put it on at five in the morning and somebody would yep. be up and be like oh eddie murphy i'll watch that you know that it would fill up space and that it would never really you know that it was as close to evergreen as you could get for exclusive content yeah uh the one things that aren't doing that well it seems like are uh and maybe you have a better example but like so the talk shows that have moved over like the actual like sort of late night things like there was the chelsea, chelsea Handler, Handler, right, right. Uh, which I don't think was doing. I, I don't even know if it's still on. Uh, it might be, but I don't think that's like a weird format for Netflix, right? Do you agree? Like it's um, yeah. I I watched it a few times, and I as a talk show aficionado, uh, I, 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 I do. I liked it, and I thought you know, and and there's this whole you know uh, meta discussion for years now of you know how come there aren't any women with with late night comedy shows you know and even in this era when Jay Leno and Letterman were retiring and there was time for turnover the show still went to to guys um right and so i was interested in Chelsea Handler's show and i liked it and i watched quite a few episodes but it never ever grooved on me and i don't know why and there is something to a talk show a late night talk show where it feels like it's supposed to be on at a certain time even if i right. watch it, there's a ritual to it yes it, totally even if i watch it on tivo which i usually did and it, it, it feels like this was the show from tuesday and it was on at eleven thirty, and you know that it was yep. on at tuesday at eleven thirty, and the netflix style of here it is and you can watch it whenever it somehow doesn't seem right but on the other hand, and she I, definitely Chelsea Handler's show. It definitely felt like a late night talk show. It didn't feel like like uh, Ellen DeGeneres' show, which very clearly is a daytime talk show. And I, you know, we could spend a, you could teach a whole class on what are the lighting and right, audience differences. Yeah, but I, I, you can tell. You know, I don't know. You know, it's uh, I don't know how to explain it, but I know it when I see it. There's late night shows and daytime talk shows, and Chelsea Handler's was a late night talk show. And that reminds me of, I wrote about this a while ago, I guess when Stranger Things was on, so, you know, the Netflix show. Um, I loved Stranger Things, I thought it was great, but um, I kept thinking to myself while we're watching it, like, yeah, it's cool that we can binge watch it, but it almost feels like the type of show where it would have been better suited for sort of a weekly cadence type yeah. thing. And there's like, you know, release watches, uh, you know, sort of like what we do, yep. what people do for Game of Thrones yep. now. Um, yeah, especially with the cliffhanger endings, you know, it, it, yes, I don't know, right. I do feel, I, I, if there's anything I think Netflix should rethink is I think it's, they should, they should rethink their, we're just going to drop the whole season at once for all of our shows. I don't think that they should do that. I think that for some shows it works and for some shows it, right. it's actually robbing us of some fun. Yeah. And I think their stance on the matter is we have this very, this very regimented worldview of, of that. And this is, we want people to know that 
all of our content is always going to be available when they sign up. But I do, th- I would bet that over time they do get more nuanced with that, and they do have show- some shows that launch like that, and some that don't. And they're starting to get more into movies now. And there's obviously all this sort of back and forth between theater owners. Like some of them want to make sure that the movie is still screened in a theater for Oscar contention and whatnot. And Amazon has been more amenable to that, I guess. And Netflix still has been very strict in saying nope has to go on Netflix the exact moment that uh, sort of it, it launched. And I would imagine that they have to sort of give and take a little bit on some of those things. So much for not spending five minutes talking about Netflix and Amazon. <laughs> yeah. uh, I would say yeah. this. I, I think uh, Game of Thrones, I enjoy it. I enjoy it very much. I look forward to it coming back. Uh, I watch it every week. I would rank it as one of my favorite shows of all time. Is it top 10? I don't know. It's close. It's it's certainly in the top 20, but it may not be in the top 10. I'm not a huge super fan. Um, but I would say this, I think it's the best show ever in the history of these modern, uh, super shows at, at making that weekly cliffhanger add to the show. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's the best. There's a bunch of shows that I've enjoyed more, but Game of Thrones, and, and I think it's partly just that they're very self-aware of their we're on Sunday night and we're going to make you talk about us Monday and combined with the fact that there's like a thousand characters. (laughs) So, (laughs) right? right? Like a a show like Mad... So it's not repetition over and over. A show like Mad Men, which I would possibly argue is my all-time favorite show. It's certainly in my top two or three. Uh, It had a so much smaller number of characters and had one character who is clearly the protagonist of the story that it was, it would have been artificial to have a cliffhanger every week. It it just wasn't, it, some weeks it was, you know, it, it, most weeks, more weeks often than not, it didn't leave you dying for the next episode. And that was just the way the show was written and it was very natural to it. But Game of Thrones is, is really, really good at that. I feel like Game of Thrones that was dumped 10 episodes at once would be, it would lose so much. Yes, totally. And, uh, you know, the notion used to be that you would save sort of the cliffhanger for the season end um, uh, because it's just so hard to do them week after week and Game of Thrones pulls it off better. I can't like Breaking Bad was pretty good about Mm -hmm. it. Uh, You know, then there's a handful of other shows that I think were good at it. But um, but yeah, uh, it's pretty incredible. And the fact that they've they do it and they had to translate it from books. Right. Right. I mean, like, so it's not like the books are obviously they follow them to a certain extent but the cliffhanger thing is just a page turn away so it's right. different well what i one of the books i remember having that feeling with was when i first read the lord of the rings because i remember with the lord of the rings where the chapters would you you'd leave sam yeah one location you'd yeah leave frodo and sam and you go back to somebody and you'd be like oh my god why are we going back to them i want to find out what happened to frodo and sam jeez that's terrible and then all of a sudden three pages later you're all forget about frodo and sam you're with these other guys <laughs> right and then you get to the and that is what the game of thrones books do as well they right. focus on one individual yeah storyline right. and it's I, I i like i love those books you know duh, I mean, who, who doesn't love those books but uh Part of the brilliance of the structure was the way that every single chapter I was like desperate to keep going with who I was with and was very upset to go back to these other characters. But then three pages later, I'm all totally into them. And I feel like, yeah, right. I feel like Game yep. of Thrones has that in, in TV. I, I, I can't believe I, I know they're going to pull it off, but I really can't believe that they're going to pull off like finishing the whole series before even the next book. You know, there's still two more books to come. And I think they're going to finish the series before the, even the next book comes. Uh, and it's just incredible. Like, 
you would have thought like this would have been the ultimate logistical nightmare when you're sort of pitching this show, right? Like, what's the worst that could happen? Well, we could not have sort of know what the ending is going to be because the other books haven't come out yet. Uh, oh, come on, that's you know a decade away. Of course, we're going to have those, and nope, we're we're not going to have them. I, I don't know. I don't know how that's. It doesn't make any sense to me. I haven't read the books though, so I don't. I don't really care. It's um, it's just in, insanely impressive of the showrunners of that show that right. they're able to sort of land the ship uh, without having the <laughs> infrastructure you would think to do so. Yeah, I wonder if that's going to really hurt the show. I wonder how much they depend on that. I, I, I don't know. I, it's it's it, it is actually unprecedented to know what would what will end up happening with that. Like, do they? Because they say the show's only going to so this coming season, which I think starts in July, is going to be slightly truncated. Right? It's going to be, I think, seven, six or seven episodes, not ten. And then they're going to split that into the next season, which will also be a truncated season, and that's the end. Um, really? But do. That's that's what the word is right now. I don't know if they're going to change that at all. Do they end up doing something like you know ending it with a uh, with a movie uh, in a few years, right. something like that? Um, but as of right now, I think the plan is just two more seasons, two more shortened seasons. Well, I don't know. I don't know how they're going to do it. I look forward to it though. Yes. All right, MG, thank you so much for your time. It's always good to have you on the show. Yes, thank you. Uh, I will see you soon, and uh, everybody can catch you on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? At MG Siegler. At MG Siegler. And your, uh, the place where they can catch the writing. Uh, is it all your writing or just most of your writing? Most, most of it. It's 500 um, ish yeah. words. Five, 500ish.com. 500ish.com. Yeah. Uh, yes. And uh, good stuff. Still, still good columns coming out of you. <laughs> Thanks. When I, when I get a free uh, moment in between everything else that I do now these days. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Thank you, John.